KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. This is your imagination station. My name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. There you have it, Shirelle C. Limes and the Lemons. 
Hey, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. More than radio, your imagination station. It's KOPN Community Radio on the web at kopn.org. And as I said, my name is Mike Hagan. We do this program called Radio Orbit every Monday from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m., sometimes later. And... uh we're going to do it again tonight, all right? Okay, look, here's what's happening tonight. We have a wonderful guest who will be on the air in just a few moments with me here. His name is Professor Lewis Greenberg. Let me take care of a quick bit of business, though, before we bring Professor Greenberg on the air here. The program tonight is, uh, well, I guess, dedicated to the work of Dr. Emmanuel Velikovsky. If you're regular listeners of this program, you know that he was one of my heroes and is. And actually... I didn't even realize it until today, but uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky died on the 17th of November back in 1979. So only 10 days ago, back, what, 27 years now. So anyway, Professor Greenberg is a uh, man who has a great depth of knowledge with regard to Dr. Velikovsky. So we'll talk with him in just a moment. But first, thanks to Debbie, Free Range Radio Theater. Wonderful, as always, tonight, The Wizard of Oz, and one of my favorite productions, whether it's on the television or listening to it over the radio, you know, that's one that I should mention to Jay Widener as I think about it. You know, he likes to write about alchemy in film and uh, the way that sometimes alchemical ideas and uh, uh, this sort of thing come through in film. Stanley Kubrick, of course, one of his favorites uh, with 2001, A Space Odyssey in particular. But anyway, I'd like to ask, you know, Lord of the Rings is another one of these films that has the same ideas in it. Star Wars is another one. But anyway, I, I've always thought the same about The Wizard of Oz, so we'll have to ask Jay next time we have him on the air, I think on the 18th of December, what he thinks about The Wizard of Oz, as far as you know, some of the messages that are embedded within that film and that production. Anyway, thanks to Debbie Johnson, as always, Free Range Radio Theater, 10 p.m., an hour before this program every Monday, all right? Kelvin and Jason, before that, jazz plus blues equals holiday cheer. Tech radio, always great. Helping us out with our gadgets. Jeff Wheeler getting things going with Uncommon Light, 3 to 5 p.m. every Monday. So great radio on KOPN, and I'm pleased to be a part of it. All right, thanks to everybody last week who participated in the program. Thanks to my guest, Father Thomas Doyle, a really gutsy man doing work that maybe more people in the clergy should be doing around the world. Work about and with regard to children, you know, rather than proselytizing dogmatic nonsense and working the levers of institutional control mechanisms, this guy is out there really trying to help the plight of children. So, anyway, thanks to Father Thomas Doyle for his uh, courage and uh, doing what he does. You know, it's a primary problem we face as modern people in the West and the East all around this planet, you know, the abuse of children. And it's, a, I mean, in my opinion, it's the single most catastrophic cause that's at the root of, you know, a broken culture. For those who've even casually studied it, you know, it's as obvious as the sunrise. But anyway, it's sort of like an elephant in the living room when it comes to the media and the established institutions, the way that they look at these sort of things, or the way that they don't look at them. It's unspeakable to most people. Well, anyway, Father Doyle's not afraid to speak it, so good for him and good for you if you heard his important words. If you missed those words, they're on the web at www.mikehagan.com, the archives or the music page. Uh, speaking of music, 
we had the wonderful tunes of Chris Coza last week, a wonderful singer-songwriter from Minneapolis. And again, if you'd like, you can check that out in the archives at www.mikehagan.com. And add another W at the beginning of that, all right? Okay, um, like last week, a little different than normal. Rather than wait till midnight, we're going to start the show right off with our guest, Professor Louis Greenberg. We'll also be mixing in some music from my friend Shannon Diaz, the hands and brains behind a band called Sherelle C. Limes and the Lemons. We started things off there with a song that's called Ninth Floor. And uh, Shannon's awesome. She's a wonderful talent here in town, and we'll hear more from her as the show moves along, okay? But right now, we are going to jump right in, and uh, we're going to welcome our very special guest, Professor Louis Greenberg. He is uh, Professor Emeritus of the Moore College Art and Design, taught for many, many years, and retired in 1999. He has been associated with a number of different publications and books. He was the the editor-in-chief of Kronos Publishing for 12 or 13 years, and he's contributed all kinds of material to these publications, uh, Pensy, as well as Kronos, and... He's been published in many other different areas, in science, astronomy, biblical archaeology, lots of other things. So without further ado, we will say welcome to Radio Orbit, and thank you very much for uh, being on the program. Professor Lewis Greenberg, hello. Good evening, uh, Mike. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for being on the show. Professor Greenberg, the way I like to start these things usually is uh, just sort of with our guests, regardless of who I'm talking to. We've got plenty of time to sort of expand on things, so I'd like it if you could maybe tell the audience and me a little bit about yourself. Uh, I mentioned earlier before we got on the air here, well, before I brought you on the air, I should say, that we're going to be discussing, among other things, Dr. Velikovsky. But let's talk a little bit about you and uh, and your path and how you sort of got into this boat to begin with, okay? Fine. I was a professor of ancient and oriental art history for a period of almost 40 years with a background in art history and history ranging from ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome, India, Islam, and China. I know that's a huge amount, but uh, through unusual happenstance, I was able to take a goodly number of courses in those areas, not only as a graduate student, but beginning as an undergraduate. I had a couple of marvelous undergraduate professors who were able to introduced me to these areas in a more specialized way. And the way I was able to really immerse myself in some of these fields had to do with the fact that I was originally a pre-veterinary medicine uh, individual Mm -hmm. at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. And it wasn't until my junior year that I was able to take an elective in the area of art history. I was not that happy in my field of uh, interest, initial interest, that is, veterinary medicine. When I took my first course in art history, something that was not offered on the high school level, I said, oh, my gosh, this is it. As a result, I went five years as an undergraduate at Rutgers, but I, and I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in art history mm-hmm. with honors, but at the same time, because of my original major, I was only about six credits shy of a B.S., And I took sufficient number of courses in mathematics to be inducted into Pomu Epsilon, the National Honorary Mathematics Society. In fact, my brother 
is a PhD in mathematics and is in the same society. I was also able to take courses in astronomy and chemistry and so forth. I mention this because of the fact that when I finally met Velikovsky, who was a polymath, mm-hmm. somehow just by by just by accident, by good fortune, I was able to handle a lot of the different areas that he himself was involved with. All right. Let's uh, let's expand on that a little bit. I'm sure there are people out there in the audience that don't know what a polymath is. Oh. And I think yeah. it's important to clarify that because because this is the key to Velikovsky's work, perhaps, or one of them. Fine. Velikovsky, first of all, was born in Russia in the city of Vitebsk, an area that is not an area that's not that far from Moscow. Mm-hmm. And he was educated in a way that you would not find that today. He was a man who not only studied a wide range of fields, he ultimately became a doctor in the area of psychoanalysis, but also he had a background in so many different areas, as well as being polylingual. He was able, because of his birth and where he traveled, uh, to speak and read in Russian, German, English, French, Hebrew, and to read Latin. Oh, my gosh. So he was able to do a tremendous amount of original research by going directly into these various uh, the various sources written in those languages. And by polymath, it's applied to an individual who is able to be wide-ranging in a number of fields and not just ranging in those fields, but having a recognized ability in those fields, uh, something that would make an impression Hmm. Uh, something that would go beyond being a dilettante, even though some of his critics later on might have accused him of being that, but that's not the case at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Later on in this broadcast, I will tell you more about the man as far as who he rubbed elbows with and who he associated with. That alone would uh, rank him quite highly. Right. Well, I, I should have mentioned when I actually did your introduction that, you know, Professor Greenberg is obviously an expert and it'll become apparent on the life history and the work of Dr. Emanuel Velikovsky, but he was also a friend and a peer of the great Velikovsky, and I know that you even edited some of his work, so you, are, you obviously are someone who can speak with a little bit of authority on what this man was about. I knew him for virtually exactly eight years, plus a week. We first met on November the 11th, wow. 1971, and I find this to be very amusing as far as the idea of synchronicity, that is, things coming together in time, Mm. and the names that are applied to certain uh, places or events. I met him in Bethlehem. This was Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Bethlehem Steel. He was lecturing at Moravian College in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, on November the 11th. He was invited there, I believe, by an astronomy club, And my students, who by that time were aware of my interest, because I was introducing his uh, work and his theories in my classes, especially my freshman classes and my Art of Ancient Egypt, mentioned it to me. And several of us went out there together, and we met him. Uh, I met him 
in uh, Moravian College. I handed him a letter that I had already written uh, of introduction, and then I did not uh, have a chance to speak to him uh, that much afterwards, except he told me, to, after the lecture, he told me to keep in contact and give my a name and uh, address to his granddaughter who was there, and I'll elaborate on that later because it's a very funny story. Okay. Anyway, I knew him uh, for eight years because, uh, as I said, I met him in November of 1971, and then he uh, passed away in November of 79. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In fact, I was supposed to go to his home. I had been there many times before. He lived in Princeton. I was supposed to go there the Monday. Originally, I was scheduled to go there the Monday after he passed away. He passed away on a Saturday morning. Oh, my gosh. And the reason I was supposed to go there was twofold. One, to kind of pick him up, uh, to give him a boost. We had a very... How old was Emmanuel then? He, uh, he, he, was, was, born 80, he was 84. Yeah, because he was born before the turn of the 19th century. He was born in 1895 okay. on June the 10th. Hmm. He, um, he, his birthday is the same as the death of Alexander the Great. <laughs> I mention that because of the fact that he was very interested and very much aware of the significance of certain dates. In fact, November the 17th, the day he passed away, is supposedly the date of the beginning of the flood of Noah. So uh, that was another interesting point. Of course, it wasn't called November the 17th <laughs> back in uh, biblical times, but it corresponded to that date right. and had uh, significance. And also, I was going to go to his home to help unblock some of the unpublished work, of which there is much, and I can elaborate on that later on as well. There is a great deal of material that has yet to be published, and it's, it's truly tragic, and I will go into what has been unpublished, what it contains, as best I know, and why it has not appeared. All right. And, well, uh, that's the story. Before we go there, let, let's talk a little bit about what happens in between 71 and 79. So... At, in 1971, you met him sort of serendipitously, I guess. Well, what happened was, as I said, we went out to the, the way I... Let me backpedal a moment, mm -hmm. how I first came in contact with his work. Yeah, please. I was lecturing to a freshman class at Franklin and Marshall College. I was an assistant professor there uh, between uh, 1967 and 19... I'm sorry, uh, between 19... Uh, yeah, 1967 and 1972, mm -hmm. I was a full-time assistant professor, and I had uh, also taught there between 66 and 67 as a guest lecturer. Late in, uh, in, in one of the sessions that I was uh, presenting, in which I was presenting material on ancient Egypt, we were dealing with the New Kingdom, which is considered to be the height of imperial Egypt. And the subject of chronology came up. And at that point, I mentioned that there was an individual who would like to compress that chronology. He felt that the chronology had been overextended and a mistake had been made. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know his name offhand. It's a foreign name. I couldn't quite think of it. I don't remember even how I happened to hear it. And I said, but I don't know how he is able to do this. Mm -hmm. I have not read his work. And with that, one of my students, and if it had not been for this one student, my entire life would have changed 
at that point because he was one of my brightest students. His name was James Chappell, and he said to me, Oh, Professor Greenberg, you're referring to Emanuel Golikowski. Amazing. And given your interest in a variety of things, one of the things at the time I was uh, using certain science fiction works for a pedagogical tool, Mm -hmm. he introduced me to Velikovsky's magnum opus at the time, Worlds in Collision. Worlds in Collision. He gave me his copy, paperback copy. 1950, is that? Uh, Came out of 1950, right. That's the one that started all the controversy, which we can go into uh, later on. Anyway, this was in 1969, the spring of 69, I believe, um, or, no, it wouldn't be uh, the spring of 69 because um, it might have been the the fall of 68 or the fall of 69, the first semester course when we dealt with Egypt. Uh, it's, I, I didn't mark the time because I didn't real to f- realize the full significance of it. Right, when do we, you know? And I started to read the book. Well, I, I couldn't put it down. And in the book, he kept referring to ages and chaos. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, this is... Uh, the end of the 60s, and I'm reading a book from 1950. Right, right. It was already close to 20 years old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, as soon as I finished that book, then took I me, ran out. It took me till 1990 to find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, a lot of people, as it turned again, you talk about synchronicity. Um, when I met a lot of people involved with Velikovsky's work later on, especially at a first symposium on his work in 1972, it turned out that so many of us all came in contact with his work for the first time starting in the late 60s moving into the beginning of the 70s it's one of those unusual mm, there's a lot of things a lot of things that were coming out of the closet so to speak in that time yeah and um, we all happened to come upon this work mainly by accident and this was in a variety of fields we found it applicable we found it uh, fascinating intriguing and as I said, because of the references that he made to Ages in Chaos that was uh, supposed to be forthcoming, I couldn't wait to get a copy of that. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the one that was the real eye-opener because that was the first volume that dealt with his chronological revision. Right, laid down the timeline a little bit yeah. more firmly. He started with the year 1500 B.C. approximately, and uh, he synchronized this actually around 1450 where he placed the Hebrew Exodus in line with what others had proposed, although today uh, the general consensus, which I do not believe is correct, if there was an Exodus at all, places it during the time of Ramses II in the 13th century B.C., which seems to go more along with Cecil B. DeMille Mm. than any real solid archaeological or any other kind of evidence, but uh, that's another matter. In any event, the book was so gripping to me that I tried to read it in one day. I was bleary-eyed. It can't be read in one day. There's so much in there. And I was reading it standing up, sitting down, lying down, any position to stay awake to read it, and I would choose students away as I was going into one of the lounges to read and wherever I could find a place to read. And it turns out that I had an evening course to teach. And I was so sorry I had to leave it to go teach the evening course, but, again, it's something that cannot be read in one sitting. Mm. Uh, There was so much in there. And all I kept thinking to myself as I read that, and then when I was reading Worlds in Collision earlier, was yes, yes, yes. 
World in Collision stirred something in me, and I said this to Velikovsky years later, something almost atavistic that I could not put my finger on, something that I'd almost sensed even as a child. It had to do with my reaction to the planet Venus as an evening star, and it had to do with what I perceived as being a a universal event that occurred around 1500 B.C. in different Mm -hmm. cultures. There seemed to be the possibility of a universal break that no one could seem to explain, and he seemed to present what was a good theory at the time for this, Mm -hmm. a cosmic disruption caused by the planet Venus. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to... I don't want to... Uh, get ahead of myself and become unfocused. So let me go ahead and proceed with how I met Velikovsky, and then I'll I'll backpedal and go over his individual work, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do that. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, your meeting and how your relationship sort of evolved. We'll take a little break in maybe five minutes or so, then we'll come back and we'll start talking a little bit more about him, okay? Okay. As I said, we went to Moravian College, and he was late. Now, he was already 76 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. And from the way he wrote, I didn't know what to expect. His writing is excellent. He's very easy to read. Very uh, clear, precise sentences, not long, cumbersome. A pleasure to read. But when I met him personally, I was actually taken aback because when he spoke, he spoke with a thick accent, especially what I would say would be an original Russian accent. A Russian accent, yeah. And you really had to get used to him when you spoke to him, and because he was late and uh, he was in a hurry, we didn't have a chance to uh, connect that easily uh, at, at the first encounter. In fact, I didn't even know for sure what he looked like. <laughs> and when I came in, I had a letter all typed up, and I wanted to give it to him, and I asked somebody if they could uh, tell me where he was I, so I could meet him, and nobody could help me, and all of a sudden... This woman appeared and said, I understand you'd like to meet Dr. Velikovsky before the lecture. I said, yes. Can you help me? She says, yes, I can. I'm his daughter. Mm. It was his daughter. He had two daughters, uh, Shulamit, the eldest, and Ruth. And this was Ruth, who lived also in Princeton. Mm -hmm. His eldest daughter lived and still lives in Israel. Anyway, she introduced me to him. Now, I must say it was a most unusual encounter. Velikovsky stood about 6'3", and at my very tallest, I probably reached (laughs) 5'8". And not only that, even though I was 33 years old at the time, I always have looked much younger, even right up to the present, I'm happy to say, (laughs) jeans and who knows what other reasons. Uh, I must have looked, in fact, my my students who went with me even commented on it that night, they said I looked more like 23. (laughs) And I was introduced as Professor Greenberg, and he looked at me in the strangest way, like, say what? (laughs) Professor? (laughs) Yeah, and I looked at him like, hello, (laughs) and you're Velikovsky. Anyway, he went um, into the lecture hall, and so did I. We had gotten there early enough to take seats in the first two rows. Mm -hmm. And um, I sat down in the seat that had been saved for me, and I was talking to my students how I had met him for that moment and uh, I can't wait for the lecture. And there was a young lady sitting next to me who looked like she might be in her late teens. And from my conversation with my students, she struck up a conversation with me. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, you're familiar with his work also. 
She says something to the effect, yes, I should be. I'm his granddaughter. Well. <laughs> it was Ruth's daughter. Well, Naomi, well, that was quite... <laughs> Another uh, synchronicity. That way. Yeah. And he gave his lecture, and at the end, there was a question and answer period. I had a whole list of questions prepared. And as I asked the different questions, he had an answer for every one of them. Evidently, they weren't new. Others had asked them, and he was answering them all. Mm-hmm. And then I asked a question that had to do with a work of Mycenaean art, one of the most, probably the most famous work of sculpture, The Lion Gate of Mycenae. Yes, now people have to remember that your, your perspective was one, you were coming from, uh, from an artistic and a, from, uh, from an art, art history. From, so. art histor- from an art historical and historic perspective. Okay, okay, right. right. But also, I, I became more than just interested in his cataclysmic proposals. Mm-hmm because of the fact that they impinged upon the history of man, the, the archaeology, and, and there's more than that. Even our collective psychology was mm. something that we can discuss later on. Yeah, yeah. And Velikovsky parried my question by saying that I had already been anticipated by a Professor Ramsey, whose work I knew in the late 19th century. I, I brought up the possibility of those lions, the sculptured lions being influenced by Assyrian sculpture in line with his revised proposed chronology. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, Prof- Professor Ramsey had made that observation in the late 19th century, and I felt rather crestfallen. Uh-huh. Then I had one, meanwhile, people in the back of the auditorium were becoming annoyed with the fact that I was asking this question, they wanted to get out of there, uh, those who were no longer interested. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I said, can I ask just one more question? Somebody in the back yelled, no, I was standing up at the time. I turned facing the entire audience, and I glared, and an instant silence fell over the whole auditorium, and Velikovsky looked at me, and I looked at him, and there was just something in that eye contact at the moment, Uh and then I asked my last question, did he, by any chance, is it possible that the Aten, which was worshipped by the Pharaoh Knotten, might have been the planet Venus as opposed to the sun, which is traditional thinking? Well... All of a sudden, that did it. He got a funny look in his eyes, a kind of a gleam. Uh-huh. He turned even more directly to me and said, You know, I thought ab- about that, that possibility once, and you're the only other person I've ever heard that from. And that was it. Uh-huh. I sat down, and afterwards, I went up on the stage because I wanted to have him autograph the copy that I had in my hand of Worlds in Collision. Sure. Now, I had a dog-eared paperback copy that was annotated on top of the fact that I'd received it from one of my students. Mm -hmm. And there is a parade of people all around me with hardcovers of all his books that I hadn't even seen all the hardcovers because I had gotten paperbacks except for Ages in Chaos. Another book, Earth and Upheaval, Mm -hmm. was in uh, paperback, and I hadn't even seen Oedipus and Akhenaten yet. And as people went up to him with these crisp new books to sign, he even said, have you read this? And then I came up very sheepishly with my dog ear paperback, and he looked at it, and he looked at me, (laughs) and he almost held back a smile. Oh, my God. And then he signed it like, yeah, it was obviously that I I had read it. And then he said to me, give your name and um, address to my granddaughter, and we'll, we'll stay in contact. Wow. I did not hear, now this was November, I did not hear from him again, and I had kind of given up hope. And then in January of 1972, 
out of the clear blue, I got a call from Portland, Oregon, from a Stephen Talbot, mm-hmm. that he was the editor of a journal called Ponce. Uh-huh. They were going to put out a special issue, Emanuel Velikovsky Reconsidered, and my name had been recommended by Dr. Velikovsky. Well, I was very flattered. And they mentioned, he mentioned specifically something about the Lion Gate that hmm. I had proposed, a question I had raised. I said, well, I have a lot of research on that, but it's, I'm not, I, I don't, I couldn't, com- um, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, he asked, uh, asked if I could uh, have that ready for a symposium that they were giving mm-hmm. in August of that year, and I said I didn't believe that I um, could have that ready. I could have it ready for them, but not for uh, the not that publication quickly. that would be uh, ready earlier. Uh-huh. I said, but I do have a piece on Afnaughton in the autumn. This is much shorter. He says, oh, that would be fine. The very next day, I got not one but two letters in the mail from Velikovsky, where he said that he had written, and this was a habit he would have. He would write a letter, type it up, but he wouldn't send it immediately. For whatever reason, sometimes just procrastination, other times he would rethink or want to add something to the letter. So Uh uh he held back, and finally, instead of having one, I had two letters, and one was an invite uh, to this, Symposium, and then I would be receiving a call from Stephen Talbot, which I already had received. And it turns out that he had misheard my question or misinterpreted the one about the Lion Gate. This Professor Ramsay had made an observation that the lions of Mycenae might have been influenced by Phrygian lions, lions found on a tomb in Phrygia, which would be present-day Turkey. But I had proposed Assyria which would be in what is present-day Iraq. Mm, yeah. So this was a novel That's idea. That's interesting. And he asked me if I would write on that. Well, again, I was finally ready to present that in August, but I had a deadline of, I don't know, February or March to get out an article for Ponce. Mm-hmm. So this is why I wrote the article on Akhenaten. It was titled Akhenaten on Akhenaten, Aten and Venus Reconsidered. Actually, it should have been just Akhenaten, Aten and Venus. Huh because they, they weren't considered they before. They hadn't considered to begin with, right. <laughs> and uh, this became the first issue of Ponce, which came out in um, early 72, I would guess sometime around April, perhaps, or, or May of 72. And then I went out to Portland, Oregon, in August of 72, and presented, along with many others, it was a three-day symposium, I believe, uh, this talk that I gave on the Lion Gate at Mycenae, mm-hmm. and then ultimately it was published in the third issue of Ponce. What happened was there was such a positive response to the special issue of Ponce, Emmanuel Velikovsky reconsidered that ultimately Ponce published ten issues <laughs> devoted to his work between 1972 and the end of 1974. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, the funds that they had towards publication uh, were not sufficient to keep the journal going, and they had to fold and go out of business at the end of issue number 10, at the end of 1974. Hmm. In the meantime, I'd just like to jump ahead, and then we can return to the more specifics of Velikovsky's own work. My colleagues, who I knew based on the East Coast, especially one Warner Sizemore and another individual, Robert Hewson, who was at Glassboro State College. I was a guest lecturer there, and that's how I happened to meet these people. And 
we felt that there was a need to have another journal because Ponce was more and more emphasizing what we call the hard sciences. Mm -hmm. It was going for astronomy. It was going for physics, uh, for uh, chemistry. And we felt that the humanities were being ignored. And we decided on starting a journal that would come out of the East devoted more towards what has been termed, unfortunately, the soft sciences, the history, psychology, especially psychology was being neglected since Velikovsky was a psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. And his work did impinge upon the world of psychology, and he himself believed in a certain theory that he titled collective amnesia, he coined that phrase, and his work ultimately pointed in the direction of war, something that we can discuss later on tonight. Mm -hmm. He was very much concerned about war and what caused war, what were the roots of war, and felt that the human race was heading towards an ultimate disaster, uh, self-extinction, if you will, if war wasn't terminated. And he felt that there were traumatic psychological reasons for this right. based upon his work. And this this was the beginning, I guess, when you had the idea to do Kronos. Do Kronos, right. And it turned out that we did not know that Ponce was going to fold, but Ponce did fold. The Kronos, while well, we talked about in October of 1974, uh, did not come into fruition until March of 1975. Mm -hmm. And yet, as things go in life, I was blamed for a number of years of undermining Ponce and doing it, and even though by issue number three of Ponce, I was put on the editorial staff. In mm -hmm. fact, I was an associate editor of Ponce for eight of its issues, as well as contributing articles to that journal and I hardly undermined it so that's the way that's the way things go and the the idiots who came up with that I uh, will not even bother to mention their huh. names but uh, this is the way it was and so we then took on the additional burden of publishing articles in all fields mm -hmm. not just the humanities right. and but, but in social sciences but also in the, the hard, hard sciences, sciences. yeah all right, well, look, that's, uh, that's a good place for us to take a break here, okay? Fine. All right, we'll do it, everybody. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Professor Lewis Greenberg. He's a professor emeritus at uh, Moore College Art and Design, and uh, he was a close associate and friend of Emanuel Velikovsky. We're having a fascinating conversation. We'll be back with Professor Greenberg in just a few minutes here. In the meantime, we'll play another piece of music here from my friend Shannon Diaz. This song is called... A Toast to the Month of July. I've played it once or twice. I really like it, and I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back in just a minute with Professor Greenberg. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM.
right, there you have it, a toast to the month of July. Shirelle C. Limes and the Lemons, otherwise known as the wonderful Shannon Diaz. Wonderful stuff, yeah. I love the music that this girl is writing, and she's got a whole bunch of it. And um, it's always nice to find good songwriters that are full of emotion and uh, expression and write a lot of music. I know lots of great songwriters, but I don't know a lot of them that are prolific. Anyway, Shannon writes a lot of music, and I like a lot of it. So we'll hear more from uh, her throughout the rest of the program. In the meantime, we will get back to our very special guest, Professor Lewis Greenberg. We're discussing the work of his own hands and also that of an amazing associate of his whose name was Dr. Emmanuel Velikovsky. Professor Greenberg, thank you for sticking around. Oh, no, my, my pleasure. At this point, what I'd like to do for your audience is to give them background as to Velikovsky, the man, the scholar, mm -hmm. so they, they can be oriented regarding where he was coming from and the work that he produced and what it stirred and his basic theories that were so unsettling to the academic community. Yeah, let's do that because uh, certainly it was enough to uh, encourage you and some other people to to create Kronos, which was something that was done to promote and to uh, distribute his work. Kronos lasted for 13 years, and we produced 44 issues, among other things. And I finally had to terminate it. I originally planned just to go on sabbatical for a couple of years, but because I was chief cook and bottle washer, and I'll go into that if I go into it all later on. Well, and, and you I know what? Let me have to stop. Let, let me jump in real fast, too, and just mention that uh, on the web, everybody, you can find information uh, about there is still some th uh, a number of pieces that are uh, still being published. In fact, a book that Professor Greenberg has written called Let There Be Darkness. This is a, a, an amazing book about the swastika uh, and, the, and the history behind that particular image. Uh, anyway, there are a number of books and prints, primarily from the Osiris series. And you can get on the web, and you can link there directly from my site at MikeHagan.com, or you can go directly to chronos-press p r e s s and that's chronos k r o n o s dash press p r e s s dot com and uh, whatever's available i think uh professor greenberg they can get it there right yes and then they can just write to the address which is my home address and we can provide them with what is still available i can mention that later on okay and right now i'd like to put velikovsky on center stage all right let's talk about him uh, as i Indicated before, he had a superb educational background to go along with an incredible mind. To be in the presence of this man was an incredible experience, I must say. He, you really would be awestruck by him. And at the same time, he could be such a, a gentleman uh, a true gentleman and a scholar. And also, he could be like Jove and hurl, hurl thunderbolts, believe me. Mm. When you would get his ire up, you knew it. But then, he always would recant, and he would be sorry that he bowled you out for something or, or lost his cool. But even losing his cool, uh, you could survive it. There were different ways of, of doing it. In fact, he respected people more if they didn't necessarily just fold their tents or wither away in front of him. Mm. I'm not talking about resisting him with impotence, with, with, um, 
with impudence. I should say I said right. impudence as well, both. Or, yeah. <laughs> impudence and impudence. But um, at the same time, he didn't want you to go ahead and just roll over, as I discovered. In fact, mm-hmm. I will uh, elaborate on this later on when I encountered him for the first time at his home when I was invited there to read the galleys of peoples of the sea. And what happened when we, we met face-to-face in his home. Uh, but that's uh, for a little bit later on. Anyway, getting back to Velikovsky, he was not only educated at the University of Edinburgh, but uh, later on he continued to uh, get his education belatedly in Moscow. He had a problem getting an education in Russia initially. I have to realize that being Jewish in Russia at the turn of the 20th century, hmm. still under the reign of the czars, mm-hmm. uh, the last of the Romanovs and the pogroms that went on there, life was not easy for Jews. And as a matter of fact, when the Russian Revolution came about, he left Russia and went to Germany. Uh, and it was there in Germany that he met his wife because they were working together on a publication, a journal, uh, a scholarly uh, journal, the Scripta Universitatis, which ultimately became one of the foundation stones for the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. The, his wife was Elisheva Kramer, and she, as a matter of fact, was only a little more than a month younger than he was. Where Was he in Germany during World War II? No, no, we'll, we'll, I'll come to that. That's, okay. In fact, it was because of World War II that he remained in United States after coming here to do research. Interesting. Okay. Now, the point that I'd like to emphasize here about his work on the scripta, here was a publication that was devoted to publishing the works of notable Jewish scholars from all over the world. Einstein, who Velikovsky knew personally. Right. I've seen his letters. Yep. Was responsible for the mathematical section, mathematics section. But Velikovsky was the general editor. He also knew Freud, and he also met with Jung. He was a third-generation Freudian, this is Velikovsky. Um, he studied under a man named Wilhelm Steckel, a uh, student of Freud's. And just listening to those names... He must have liked Jung, though. There's a lot of Jung in Velikovsky, it seems to me. Uh, it's hard to say. I... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he didn't talk that much about Jung. I, I think that their, some of their ideas may have run parallel or, or intersected, but uh, he never thought of himself, and from my experience with him, he never thought of himself as a Jungian, although he would look, certainly, for archetypes and archetypal symbolism. Right. Um, probably more of a Jungian than Velikovsky, but very much a Freudian, I would say. Okay. Uh, again, I don't know if he would consider himself that, but I felt that from my experience with him. But just from the work that he did then, based in Europe, he already published in Imago, which was Freud's uh, journal. And one of the things that he is to be credited with, he recognized that there is an underlying cause for epileptics, that uh, one can see by looking at encephalograms. And uh, I guess he viewed it as, from the standpoint of some sort of uh, electrical brainwave disruption. 
it shows from his earlier ob- this early observation that the man was already aware of the effects of electricity and the the underlying uh, presence of electrical forces at work, something that was to come out in his later work, uh, which I'll mention, something that is taken as commonplace today, but something that was poo-pooed when he presented these ideas back in 1950. And the cast of characters who heap coals on him, I shall be more than happy to enumerate, mm-hmm. because they have all fallen by the wayside and been discredited over the years, although they keep bringing out the same old, same old rehash critic, criticism, even though they've been debunked and quoted long ago, but we'll, we'll come to them. In any event, Velikovsky was involved with the scholarly work and uh, his own psychoanalytical activity. But even though he had done what he had done, and he was a world traveler, even though he had accomplished uh, many important scholarly things, in his own mind, he still was not satisfied that he had accomplished what he felt he should accomplish. And one of the things that really stirred him, and here was the catalyst, was Freud's book, this is Freud's last book, Moses and Monotheism. In which Moses, I'm sorry, Freud uh, had Moses as some sort of court disciple of the Pharaoh Akhenaten, mm-hmm. and so the the roots of the Hebrew religion would go back to the Pharaoh Akhenaten, would be derived uh, from this heretic Egyptian Pharaoh's beliefs in Atonism a singular god, although it wasn't a monotheistic orientation, but it was the elevation of one god above all others, what Velikovsky properly termed monolatry. But he wanted to write a book, Freud and His Heroes. His intention was, I would would, would go so far as to say, would be to debunk uh, Freud's thesis. Freud somehow could not get used to his own Jewishness and uh, while he did not intend to leave uh, his religion and go to another and convert, still there was something about being Jewish that uh, bugged Freud, as it were, if I can use a modern vernacular. Sure. Uh, Freud, in his last year, was dying of throat cancer. The man was, I believe, a heavy smoker in his time. He never would leave his home I think he stayed in the same residence in Vienna for almost 47 years, but finally, as a result of the outbreak of World War II and his own health, he left and he went to England. Velikovsky wanted him to come to Palestine, but Freud would not leave. This was earlier. And then finally he left and went to England where he died. Velikovsky, at that time, decided that in order to do proper research for what he, he, he intended to do, he recognized that there was a relationship between Oedipus and the, the theory of, of Oedipus, the Oedipus complex that Freud had put forward, and the Pharaoh Knotten. Hmm. And so he felt that he'd have to go to America to do proper research on that. That's where the source material would be. Uh-huh. He left with his family, and they came to the United States in 1939. Wow. And, of course, the outbreak of World War II uh, left him 
in the United States where he, where he stayed. He did not return uh, to live in the old world, stayed here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Something which some of his critics still don't know in, in, in an idiotic book titled Encyclopedia of Pseudoscience, which came out about uh, four or five years ago, offered by one of the book clubs. Huh. Uh, a horrendous book. And I wrote a scathing letter in which I shredded that book, the, the key articles, and sent it to the publisher, the book club, the editor who I, I knew, and um, maybe uh, and, and various colleagues of mine. And uh, the you. book club was so uh, felt so funny that they offered me replacement uh, books of my choice. And I, I did not receive. I did receive a response from the publisher who said they were turning it over to the editor responsible. I never got a reply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For example, one idiot said that uh, he went back. Belakovsky went back to um, uh, Belarusia or Belarus or something like that, and back in 1939 and, and stayed there, which was so preposterous. And another one in talking about his first work, Wilson Collision, which I'll elaborate upon shortly said that Velikovsky accounted for everything in that book, including the demise of the dinosaurs. And I said, I challenge that particular author to even find the word dinosaur in the book. And it it, it goes on and on like that. And here's a book written only about four years ago. Mm -hmm. And I concluded my letter by saying it uh, reads like a bunch of geriatrics professors who uh, decided to empty all of their old file drawers their index cards and whatnot, and make money out of it by putting a book out, which is probably what they did. That's yeah, probably close to the truth. Yeah, yeah and, and and that that was it. In any event, Velikovsky started his research for what ultimately became the book Oedipus and Akhenaten. Mm-hmm. This is 1939. The book did not come out until 1960. The reason for that was that in doing his research for this original book supposed to be Freud and his heroes, but became uh, in part, uh, well, because part of the research, I should say, became Oedipus and Akhenaten. It was in October of 1940 that he actually formulated the basic thesis of Worlds in Collision. From that point on, he was uh, trapped by his own idea in the sense that he had to devote an entire, uh, the better part of an entire decade researching and writing that book, but also at the same time research and writing Ages and Chaos. Chaos, right, which followed it. Yeah. Look, uh, let let me jump in really quickly. It's just midnight, so I've got to do a little station ID here. We don't have to take a break, but just let me do my quick thing. Okay, sure. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and my guest is Professor Louis Greenberg. We're talking about Emmanuel Velikovsky, and uh, let's get right back to it. Velikovsky came to the conclusion that, and, and let me let, let me uh, set some preliminary material here uh, to orient your your listeners. Yes. The scientific community believes that the present state of our solar system, the present positioning of the planets, has been that way for millions and more likely even a few billion years, if you will. And here's where the big heresy came in. Based upon the various documents 
of history and uh, prehistory, or I should say, historical societies and prehistoric societies, uh, literate, non-literate, if you will, from around the world, Velikovsky came up with a theory of cosmic catastrophism in historic, in historical times. It was his thesis, and this is presented in his published work and also in his unpublished work, which I'll refer to momentarily. Right, I made a note. We're not going to forget that. Yeah, that the planet Venus, a newcomer to our solar system, in that he believed based upon Greek myth and religion of the birth of the goddess Athena from the head full, fully uh, uh, armored in adult form uh, from her father Zeus, Zeus Jupiter, was a kind of religious metaphor, if you will, for the birth of the planet Venus from the planet Jupiter, that it came from the core of Jupiter. Somehow was expelled from the planet. Right, expelled from the planet. Now, even Velikovsky's followers today are not sure of that aspect of the theory. Venus could have been orbiting the planet Jupiter hmm. and appeared to exit the vicinity of that planet due to some sort of disruption and go towards the inner solar system. Mm-hmm. Now, you might raise a logical question at this point. What is all this gobbledygook about? What are you uh, talking about? How could the ancients have even recounted something like that, especially today, if you asked someone to go out and even find Jupiter in the night sky? Venus is the brightest, brightest object. Yeah, right. But even so, the distance of Jupiter, and Jupiter can be bright at certain times still, mm-hmm. the question that must be raised is why is it that Jupiter, and even more so Saturn, which is far less visible, should have been the paramount deities of the various pantheons that we find around the world. Mm-hmm. Contrary to mistaken notions, those deities associated with the sun are not those who sit at the head of the pantheon are not the king. Uh, for example, if you look at Greek religion, and we'll look at the others momentarily, it is Jupiter who is king of the gods, actually Zeus, but Zeus succeeds his father, Kronos, and I chose the name Kronos right, right. deliberately. That is the Greek counterpart of Saturn. Saturn. It is Saturn who rules over the Golden Age, who is the first of the great kings, Saturn as king. And then you have a revolt of the children of Saturn. Saturn actually swallows his children because he was told that uh, one of them would lead a successful rebellion against his rule. And this is in Greek mythology. And this is Greco-Roman mythology, right? And... The mother of Zeus gave Saturn a stone. Instead, he swallowed that, and that's uh, why uh, Jupiter, Zeus Jupiter, was was saved. And a painting by Agoya shows this very well, Saturn devouring his children. And then later on, even though they were devoured, they all came out, and that's how you have the Olympians. Uh But the the uh point is that 
if you go to the various religions, for example, in ancient Egypt, one of the chief gods is Amun, the god Amun, mm-hmm. or Amun, however you wish to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And also there is the god Ra. Egyptologists keep making the mistake of putting them together. All sun gods. Yeah, right, they put them together too. They come Yeah, and becomes a syncretic god Amun Ra. Right. Amun was Jupiter and identified by the classical authors themselves, one of them Herodotus, for example. Mm-hmm. And Ra, who is always thought of as being only the sun, can be identified as Saturn. Also, Osiris, a major deity of ancient Egypt, yes. one who has befuddled Egyptologists, especially one, Sir Alan Gardner, who wondered what exactly did Osiris represent other than, let's say, a vegetative deity or a god of the underworld or a god of vegetation? And Velikovsky came up with strong evidence that Osiris was also Saturn. You could have more than one planetary god associated with the same planet. Mm. And, for example, in ancient Mesopotamia, the god Marduk Mm -hmm. was associated with Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And the god Anu or An, was associated with Saturn. Ishtar, the goddess, was associated with Venus. Velikovsky showed that, aside from Aphrodite, who was associated with the planet Venus, also Athena could be associated with the planet Venus. And as a matter of fact, uh, sometimes Aphrodite is associated with the moon. And it, it, it goes on that way in Roman in the Roman pantheon, you have, of course, Saturn as Saturn, Jupiter as Jupiter, and so on. Ares in Greece was associated with Mars. Horus in Egypt was probably associated with Mars also. If you go to India, you have the great gods Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. Brahma was probably to be associated with um, Saturn. And you have Shiva, who could be associated for example, with uh, uh, Jupiter, and you have Vishnu. Uh, the question of who is Vishnu associated with, uh, there's a debate over that, and there are other deities that could be associated with various planets. But again... But there's reasonable evidence of that, too. Yeah, right. I mean, the, but the, the, the main point here, without going into a long dissertation on religion and different pantheons, in fact, if you go to Northern Europe, with gods such as Odin and Thor, these mm. are not solar deities. Right, these are again Jupiter and, yeah. and Saturn. So um, so what gives with Jupiter and Saturn? Right, that's right. The, why is it that Saturn and Jupiter are to be elevated so high, so highly? As a matter of fact, in Worlds in Collision, you have what Velikovsky considered to be two acts of either a three-act or a four-act scenario. And in part of his unpublished work, which went through various incarnations and titles, ultimately it was titled Saturn of the Flood and Jupiter the Thunderbolt. It was going to be a prequel to Worlds in Collision, which dealt with Venus and Mars. And those are the two basic sections of mm-hmm. Worlds in Collision. Right, right. That Venus as a newcomer, and by newcomer, uh, I'm talking about as far as its placement in the solar system, in its present orbit, that Venus making a close approach to the Earth, and there was not 
and I want to emphasize that there was not lithospheric contact, in other words, they did not collide, that you can have a, quote, collision by the intersection of the magnetosphere of planets, something which was not properly recognized back in 1950. In fact, uh, Velikovsky mentioned electromagnetism and electromagnetic forces in his book, and he, this was poo-pooed, especially... Oh, yeah, was one, laughed out of the water. Yeah, yeah one, one Martin Gardner, who still, I think, is alive and kicking and rehashing the same gobbledygook that he's been doing now for 50 years plus, came out with a criticism, and then he kept recycling it, as so many of them did, in a book, Fads and Fallacies, in the Name of Science, and he said that Velikovsky invented these electromagnetic forces. Well, he was a very good inventor, because they do exist. Yeah, they do. And there's... There's more that can be discussed. In any event, the basic thesis of worlds in collision is that there were cosmic catastrophes in historical times that the records of the ancients point to this and that these extraterrestrial agents can be identified. I'm not talking about UFOs here. I'm talking about celestial bodies and the way they are described, the way they are discussed, and from his research and his writing, Velikovsky then posited certain astronomical theories about the celestial bodies. Uh, the uh, Before I, I go into that, the main heresy here that was presented is that you have a solar system, our solar system, which, and this has nothing to do with the age of the individual bodies, Mm -hmm. in its present arrangement, and I want to repeat that, in its present arrangement is not billions, not millions, not even tens of thousands of years old, but thousands of years old. Now, and, this is, and, and so this is the primary, this right. is the idea, we have, we have the idea of uniformitarianism versus this right. catastrophism right. idea, but, but we're, not, we're not talking catastrophism in deep time, we're talking catastrophism in, in, historic in, in time. very current historic time, a, right. few, a few, few thousand years ago. And you have to consider not only the astronomical and physical problems of such a theory, but the psychological problems. It's easy to read about dinosaur extinctions in 65 million, uh, 65 billion B.C. or 65 right, billion right. years ago, however you want to put it, right, right, right. and uh, even a greater worldwide catastrophe that occurred some 250 million years ago. But you see, it happened to the dinosaurs. Right, right. It happened to other us. creatures. Mm-hmm. You know... Uh, I'm, I'm, I've been waiting to pick a time to ask you, but maybe now is a good time to bring up this particular question. It has to do with dating and the idea of... I, I was reading a story today that had to do with carbon dating, ah. as a matter of fact. And Could you speak to that a little bit? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm so unconvinced about all of these dates, quite frankly. You know, anybody who's telling me what happened a billion years ago, I mean, to me, it's just whistling, you know? Let, let's... Let's talk about that, but can we put that off for a moment? Sure, sure. And then I will bring it up, and I will discuss it uh, a bit later on. It is a very important subject and a fascinating one, indeed. With the 
cosmic catastrophes proposed by Velikovsky, he had intended to come out with another book that would deal with these earlier catastrophes relating to Saturn and Jupiter. I have read those manuscripts, as a matter of fact, and they are quite detailed and referenced, but there was such an outcry against worlds in collision when it came out that Velikovsky held off in publishing this other material because it seemed, in his, his way of thinking, that it would be even more outlandish mm. to the scientific community that Saturn and Jupiter would also be responsible for some sort of cosmic catastrophe. This leads me now, before we go to any of his other work, this leads me to the controversy of worlds in collision. Before the book even came out, it came out in 1950, there were already rumblings about the book. Uh, there was some advanced publicity and some advanced articles about it in Harper's and uh, Collier's, and this began to get the scientific community on the alert as to the fact that something is, is going on here. Mm -hmm. Velikovsky had already published two pamphlets indicating where he was going with his work. One was titled Theses for the Reconstruction of Ancient History that contained um, more than 110 theses, which is basically an outline of his forthcoming chronological revisionism, and another work, Cosmos Without Gravitation, which was to be a forerun of Worlds in Collision and some of his other intended work. In any event, out came Worlds in Collision and immediately was a bestseller. It was published by Macmillan, which was primarily a trade book publication uh, house, publishing house. The book had already sold... I've got one figure of 55,000 copies at $4.50 a copy, which in those days was quite something, let me tell you. When huh. it turned out that representatives from Macmillan were being turned away or weren't even being seen by the academic community, which was now threatening to no longer update their textbooks, no longer contribute uh, any new textbooks to Macmillan, which depended upon this for their primary business. At the height of its successful publication, this is Worlds in Collision, which is on the bestseller list of the New York Times, the entire rights to the book were transferred to Doubleday, Doubleday and Company, which had no... Uh, Previous relationship. Yeah, well, also had no vulnerable textbook division, could not be blackmailed mm. by the academic community. Mm-hmm. People do not realize that the academic community is not an ivory tower. And it is... What do you mean by that? Well, it's not something where you have friendly scholars who sit uh -huh. in um, scholarly halls, rooms, researching and writing and nodding and... and uh, sharing. And sharing and, and having disciples who, and, and, and reaching out to their students and to colleagues and crossing disciplinary boundaries, oh no. It is as cutthroat, if not more so, than the business world because you don't have nearly as much money involved, so to make up for the absence of the monetary reward, you have reputations, right. you have endowed chairs, you have grants, 
it's also the only area where you have people getting who you're giving a degree to who can become your instant competition. <laughs> which also accounts for the fact that you have dissertation advisors who stand as impediments to their own students getting the final degree. Right. I can address that you know, uh, personally. You know, I'll, I'm going to say this for some of my listeners out there. I want to say hello to everyone. First of all, we haven't really had a chance to say hi to everyone who's listening. But, you know, this is something that's still going on today. Oh, absolutely. You, you know, I have... I talk to lots of different types of people on the program, and one of one of my favorite uh, people and and one of my most popular guests is a man whose name is Dr. Paul Laviolette, and he's an amazing physicist who's been doing great work in astrophysics for years, and he's completely considered a heretic, you know. While these guys and and we we don't have to go into Laviolette's work, but I just wanted to you know let everyone know that I recognize Paul as a guy that's, you know, in our world who's living under the same sort of situation. Oh, there are many heretics. Even people who have been accepted at one time or another have been considered uh, heretics or, uh, or crazy. Einstein passed a comment to Velikovsky when they had finished one of their personal discussions about Velikovsky's work mm -hmm. that something to the effect of, well, what can you pe expect from a pair of Meshuganas? <laughs> Meshugana is, uh, I guess, a, uh, I assume it's a Yiddish word. I don't believe it's just a Hebrew, but a Yiddish word that means uh, kind of like crazy people or uh, we might even say weirdos today. Uh -huh. But it was picked up by some people somehow that Einstein called Velikovsky crazy. Meshugana. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's not meant that way. It, it's meant almost in a laughable way that you've come up with an idea that might be viewed that way, but you're not crazy. Right, right, right. And it, it, also, when you say it about yourself in particular, mm -hmm. about a way out, something that's way out in the way of an idea, but that doesn't mean, or it's off the wall, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong. Yeah, you know, you can you can actually read some of the correspondences between Albert Einstein and. Uh, and Emmanuel Velikovsky on the web. I've seen some of them, and, and, and they're very respectful back and forth well, to one another. In 1983, I should mention it now, there was a posthumous work that was published uh, by Velikovsky called Stargazers and Gravediggers, <laughs> Memoirs to Worlds in Collision, published by Morrow. Uh, his Write widow, that down, everybody. His widow, it's, it, 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 it's, no, it, it's not in print, but you might be able to find it somewhere. It's Please repeat Herb it one reading. more time. Yeah. Stargazers and Gravediggers, subtitle Memoirs to Worlds in Collision, but mainly Stargazers and Gravediggers, published by Morrow in 1983. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, Velikovsky was already deceased, and his wife was in ill health. That was the last year of her life. She passed away, as a matter of fact, in late June of 1983. And... One of my regrets, and I had no control over it, is that his assistant who worked on the book as far as editing it, helping it, Mrs. Velikovsky, to get it to press, and anyone else working on it, failed to contact me in order to obtain any referential help. Had I been allowed to put my hand in this, there would have been many, many more footnotes supporting what was said in the book because 
there were a lot of later articles, even written by Velikovsky himself and published, that supported what was in the book. It had to do, for example, with a prediction he made about uh, radio signals coming from Jupiter. Mm, yeah. But unfortunately, he had an assistant who, I'm afraid, was rather self-centered, and uh, I, don't, I don't know what his problem was, but he, he did not think in terms of sharing and did not think in terms of enlisting aid, even though he was well, well aware of Cronus. In fact, I, it was I, it was through me that Velikovsky was able to have this assistant come to him. He originally offered his services to Velikovsky. Velikovsky rejected it. And then I, when I heard about it, I said, oh, I could use an assistant. This was in 1976. We were in the second volume of Kronos, and I was already beginning to feel the weight. Right. So I had this assistant with me for barely two days after we took him to Velikovsky on the second day to uh, visit. Velikovsky decided he would take him as his assistant. So that that was that. He was... This individual is the one who has put Velikovsky's work on the Internet uh -huh. because of the fact that he got so fed up with it not coming out. And in this one sense, I do agree with him. And uh, I'll say more. I, I, keep saying, I keep repeating myself. I'm sorry, but I'll say more about this a little bit later on as to why this work has not come out and what work is still out there mm -hmm. that is yet to be published. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, uh, Professor Greenberg, there's a... Uh, a wonderful website that's uh, addressed at V, just the letter V, archive, V archive. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a great deal of unpublished My material gosh. on there. It is amazing, and for people out there, you might jot that one down, too. It's just the letter V, archive.org, and I guess the V is obviously for Velikovsky, but, right. but uh, I've, I've gleaned a tremendous amount from there that I, that I wasn't able to find in print. One of the things in particular that I know is on there is the Dark Age of Greece. Yes, that's on there. There's a lot of... Oh, it's amazing. So. That was another volume in the Ages and Chaos series that I not only have read, but I read it shortly after he passed away. I was invited to come to Princeton, and I spent the better part of the time between 1979, the end of 79, and the summer of 82, going over unpublished material and indicating to Mrs. Velikovsky and his daughter Shulamith, who had come in from Israel, as to what should be published. And no matter how many times I would say, this is ready, this is ready, and they would agree one day, the next day everything was overturned. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. It was, unfortunately, just an exercise that went nowhere. Why do you think that was? There was a problem regarding the final disposition of Velikovsky's estate as who should be the literary executor. One of my dear friends, friends and colleagues, both on Kronos and going back to the days of Ponce, is Professor Lenny Rose, who has written mm. one of the books in the Osiris series, yeah, Sun, Moon, and Sophos, which is mm. actually the most popular of the Osiris books. Huh. And uh, it is still available, and you can find it listed on uh, one of the websites. He was supposed to have been the literary executor. In fact, there was even a letter to that effect. But for some legal reason, I'm not exactly sure how it came about. This did not hold. And when Mrs. Velikovsky passed away in the summer of 1983, her two daughters became the literary executors. And the one who lives in Israel, Shulamit, has been an absolute roadblock. Mm. And I... I 
just cannot fathom what her rationale is. It is I, I've butted heads with her. I've, I've worked with her. No matter what, mm-hmm. the the work is is not released. I mean, I could use a psychological term here and say she gives new meaning to the term anal retentive, but that's beside the point. She actually has published some of his work that has not appeared elsewhere in Hebrew, in Israel. Interesting. And yet has not been willing to release it worldwide in English or other languages. Uh, Ruth, her sister who lives in Princeton, has I've known Ruth since 1971, has been most cooperative when she can be of help and most friendly and she's not as familiar with her father's work as Shulamith is. Ruth herself is in psychotherapy but Shulamith is a physicist and so she's more aware of the astronomical and physical material. Yeah, And she's just more interested specifically in her father's work that way. But she stands as the impediment. One good example of what I'm talking about, one specific example Velikovsky had a much larger and different epilogue originally to Worlds in Collision in which he went much more into pure astronomical and physical uh, theory. He decided at the last moment to pull it. In fact, it was already in page proof and decided to pull it from the, the original work because he said he did not want to encumber a work that was primarily based upon literary sources, uh, a literary work with this scientific epilogue. Uh-huh. And I guess he felt he'd have enough to handle without having to uh, try to give credible answers to what he proposed in this epilogue to defend it to the astronomers and physicists when uh, he had enough to deal with with the, with the bulk of the book. He had intended to publish that material later, expanding upon it in a book that he titled The Orbit. This has never appeared. I happen to have in my possession um, the original epilogue Two Worlds in Collision. It was sent to me uh, by Mrs. Velikovsky, by the estate, and we were given permission to publish it, but First, the idea was to update it. This was given to me uh, back, I guess I would say, in 1982. I had an editor on my staff, Henry Hoff, who was a physicist, and I had other members of my staff looking at this. Anyway, Henry Hoff worked on this. It was just half of the epilogue for a full year. He inserted footnotes indicating they were they were inserted, bracketed, references. He, he really brought it as up-to-date as he, he could, and then we went ahead and we had a typeset. We were getting ready to go to press. It would have been in Kronos, which is a 6 by 9 size journal, it would have been something like 17 pages of that journal, and I was most pleased with the work that Hoff and others had done. Somehow, to this day, I do not know how uh, it came about, how she knew. Right. Uh, sometimes I thought my apartment was bugged. Huh. If I swear, I would look under my pillow at times to think there was a bug place there. But Shulamith called me all the way from Israel put the about on. publishing this and was dead set against it. Amazing. You know, that 
that I that I got it. Um, I had no right to it. I said, "How do you think I got it? You know, your mother gave it to me. I had no. First of all, I didn't know about it. So there's no way I could have gotten it other than from the estate. I wasn't in in Princeton. I wasn't privy to the archives. Right. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't have pulled something like that out. And here we had spent a whole year. We typeset it. It was all ready to go. It was ready to go. Yeah, and um, uh, we parted on unfriendly terms. And I got a lawyer's letter sent to me from their Princeton lawyer within a couple of days threatening a lawsuit if I published it. Amazing. My colleagues at the time who lived in uh, Buffalo, Lynn Rose and the late Tony Patterson, who uh, she was a professor of philosophy and an authority on Giordano Bruno, wanted me to go ahead and publish it to just disregard her, uh, Shulamith. But at the time, I felt very vulnerable. I was by myself in Wynwood, Pennsylvania, and I thought to myself, this I don't need, or the mm-hmm. lawsuit is no, it's Again, you're by yourself, and I was a full-time professor. And the question is, do I want to go up against a lawyer? Uh, my colleague, Warner Sizemore, who's my executive editor on Cronus, my co-founder, was getting ready to retire and move to the West Coast. And I was going to really be on my own right. at this point. All right. Well, look, hey, this is a good place to take a break here, okay? okay. Uh, it's about 12.30, so... When we come back, let's let's talk a little bit more about. I, I'm very interested in the psychological side of it. You talked a little bit earlier about Fine. this idea of amnesia, Fine. Uh, and I, I think that's an important part because it, it seems to play into the psychology of the other scientists as well. And I'll bring up his other book, posthumous book, Mankind and Amnesia. Mankind and Amnesia. Right. Sure. Okay. Great. We'll do that in just a minute. Okay. Okay. All right, everybody. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And I'm going to take a breather here, get a glass of water. My guest, uh, Professor Lewis Greenberg, can do the same. We'll play a piece of music here from Shannon Diaz, a.k.a. Shirelle Sea Limes and Lemons. This one's called, appropriately, The Forked Tongue. This is Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia.
Shirelle Seed Limes, and the Lemons. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. That is called, I think the full-length title of that is called The Forked Tongue is a Loaded Gun. Ain't it the truth? Anyway, that's my friend Shannon Diaz. Great music coming from this young lady, and uh, keep your eyes on her. I'm telling you, she's got a great voice, and she's got a lot of energy and some spunk, and she's cool. So, anyway, check her out, uh, Shannon Diaz, on the web at uh, Shannon Diaz, D-I-A-Z dot com. And this is Mike Hagen with Radio Orbit, and on the web, Mike Hagen, H-A-G-A-N dot com. And I've got one more website that we'll give out. It is uh, the website for Kronos, and it's uh, Kronos, K-R-O-N-O-S, Dash P R E S S. That's Chronospress.com, and there's a dash in between those two words. Okay. All right, um, Professor Greenberg, how are yes. you? Yes. Hi. Before we proceed with yeah. the uh, psychological work, I would just like to finish up my remarks about the epilogue, and also before we proceed with the psychological theories, I would like to mention some of Velikovsky's predictions right. based upon. Right. Worlds in collision, and what was discovered, what is still being discovered, and the fallout from that, because I think the audience would be most interested in hearing that. What did he call them? Forward claims, or yeah, huh? uh, his advanced claims. Advanced claims. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the very interesting stuff for and sure. Well, what we're going to have to do, I'm going to have to have you stick around. You're going to have to stay past. Uh, one o'clock. That's your no problem. If, if, if you'd like. No, that's you, no problem. I'm 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 wide awake and I'm rolling right along here, so that's okay. Okay, I'm just going to let you expand then, because okay. uh, because the you know the the detail and and trust me, the people appreciate it that are listening. I'm getting comments from people as we're as we're talking, you and I, and and the the detail that you're able to give is is really valuable. So so I don't want to take anything away from that. Just well, like, we've got we've got plenty to go, and I'm I'm running on all pistons, so there's no problem. All right, well we'll just let it roll. Uh, I did not publish what had been typeset, and by the way, it was $110 to typeset it. And the thing I've regretted, aside from not publishing, is that I should have at least forced her to pay for the typesetting to absorb that cost. But I was just so flustered by it all that I just let it go. Anyway, uh, now turning to Worlds in Collision and the advanced claims. From his scholarship, his work, Velikovsky proposed a whole range of advanced claims, including involving those celestial bodies, such as Saturn and Jupiter, that he was going to deal with in a prequel to Worlds in Collision that has not been published. I can mention some of those anyway, but he postulated that the planet Venus would be found to be hot. Now, he did not elaborate upon the word hot, so that later critics poo-pooed hot. You know, how hot is hot? especially Carl Sagan, who I will deal with later on. He said but incandescent, though, or something like he, that, didn't he? He did use the word candescence, and, and Sagan said, well, that's not the same as incandescent. He was quibbling. In fact, if you look in the dictionary, they're in- interchangeable. And the English language was not Velikovsky's first language. In fact, I believe that while Russian was his first language, he might have been thinking in Hebrew. So uh, Sagan, who denied saying billions and billions, is not one to criticize someone else's English. In any event, when the Mariner probes went out to Venus, and then later probes, the temperature of Venus was ultimately found to be around 900 degrees Fahrenheit, or at least 300 degrees above the melting point of lead. Right, right. Now, 
various theories were proposed, mainly ad hoc theories, after the fact, Velikovsky's was before the fact, that this was the result of a greenhouse effect, where carbon dioxide was holding in the solar rays, heating up the planet. In a sense, this is maybe what the Earth is now beginning to experience in this idea of global warming that eventually maybe will will trap more and more of the sun's rays or more and more will get through, heating it up, and we'll get a kind of a greenhouse effect, but that's that's way off if it's correct in any event. But it turned out that the greenhouse effect could not account for such a high temperature. Velikovsky had proposed that that temperature was the result of the primordial heat that Venus still had as a result of the fact that it was a relatively new planet. Right, that it had just moved into that orbit yeah, from yeah, elsewhere. And, and that it also, the, the dense clouds that it had were holding the heat in, but that heat was coming from the planet itself. And there are hi- hydrocarbons involved or something. Well, it was claimed that hydrocarbons were found, which was a notable prediction. This was later denied, and, and Sagan especially, again, was carrying on over it. That was misreported. It was actually in the newspapers then, they backpedaled because Velikovsky also believed that a good deal, in fact, maybe the majority of the Earth's oil was a result of an extraterrestrial deposit coming from this planetary body, and that, of course, hydrocarbons found on Venus would support this this theory. In, in, any, in any case, the idea of a greenhouse theory was now expanded upon and was then called a runaway greenhouse effect. This was still found to be not hot enough. And then Sagan went on to propose a runaway, runaway (laughs) greenhouse effect, to which I once responded. I wrote an article published in a uh, special issue of the journal Kronos titled Velikovsky and Establishment Science, in which I wrote an article titled Sagan's Folly. And I elaborate upon this again later on. And this is a, this is a, uh, a book that's still available. Yes, yeah, this one is still available. It's wonderful. This book was originally conceived as a rebuttal to Sagan and others, a book titled Scientists Confront Velikovsky that devolved from a AAAS symposium on Velikovsky's work held in 1974. It wasn't until 1977 in November of 77, as a matter of fact, that scientists confront Velikovsky came out, and we came out with our book within a matter of two weeks or so because we had their manuscripts, and we relied upon the fact that they were so lazy that they wouldn't change a word or proofread their own words, so it would all go in warts and all, including Sagan's misspelling of the word pharaoh constantly, even though he criticized Velikovsky uh, in what he thought was humorous terms, and then can't even spell the word pharaoh repeatedly misspelling it, and he had that's the way the book came out. <laughs> uh, so if, if nothing, they were all lazy as far as going over their own work and at least proofreading it. But this business about the greenhouse effect, runaway, runaway greenhouse effect, at the time there was a popular song, to do run, 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 to do run, run, and I said, my gosh, it, it sounds more like a current popular song than a serious scientific theory. <laughs> and to this day, they're still manipulating this idea of a of a greenhouse uh, theory, but it's interesting what the Russian probes found. And I wrote about this back in one of the issues of Kronos. This is from the 
summer of 1979. Velikovsky, of course, is still alive then. Those were the, the, the Venera probes? Is uh, th no, these were even later probes. Let's see. Oh, yes. No, these are the... Um, this is the Pioneer Venus probes. Okay, all right. And um, they occurred in early December, around December the 9th, as a matter of fact. They were Russian missions. Russian missions in sky back then is what they were saying. Yeah, it, in fact, uh, when Velikovsky, who identified the comet Typhon with Venus, the quote of the ancients was, it was not of fiery, but of bloody redness. It had a fiery appearance and was twisted like a coil, and it was very grim to behold. It was not really a star so much as that might be called a ball of fire. You can see this in Worlds in Collision. Right. Now, this is what people have to recognize, and we should just be really clear about it. The idea was that Venus was a body that somehow came into the inner solar system, either ejected from Jupiter or from an orbit thereabouts. Or What about Saturn? How does Saturn exactly play into the idea of, with Venus, is it? No, um, not, not Saturn. Not with, particularly. Not okay. Saturn with Venus that way, but... Um, well, let me just hold off on that for a moment right. and mention some of the other things. But anyway, it would, but anyway, it would come in looking like a comet, was the idea. Well, Venus is described as having hair, or, or, or uh, some of the words are described, and the word coma, from which we get comet, is, has to do with hair. Hmm. But even today, I just read recently where there's been a question as to what comprises a comet. A man named Fred Whipple felt that it was more of a just a, a, a giant snowball, if you will. Right. And recently there was a special show on, uh, I don't know, the History Channel or the Discovery Channel in which they supported Whipple by an analysis of the, the comments. And Whipple's daughter said, my father has finally been um, mm. uh, given his due. And a man named David Morrison, one of Velikovsky's uh, critics, who is still alive today. We had a confrontation in 1974, and he's still around. No matter how many times we rebut him, he disregards the rebuttal and keeps coming back with the same old stuff. Now, he was supporting Whipple 
but it turns out that there's also a class of asteroids that could come out as a kind of comet, if you will, an asteroid which is not a snowball with a tail. As a matter of fact, if you have a celestial body, Ralph Jurgens once mentioned this, on an elliptical orbit going through the sky, it would appear to have a tail just from its elliptical orbit, hmm. the way it might uh, move through the heavens. So, again, it depends upon your definition of, of comet. Excuse me. <coughs> it's not simply just a large snowball. So uh, that's, that's another aspect of comet. When you go to the ancients and their writings, the way Venus is described, and uh, it all points, along with the imagery, to uh, something that is along the lines of a comet. And even the kind of atmosphere that Venus has today, it's as if the tail had now been drawn and compressed around the entire planet if it once had a tail. Huh. The, um, the other thing, excuse me, about one of Velikovsky's notable uh, advanced claims, this happened just recently. My uh, friend and colleague, Warner Sizemore, sent me this by email. Back in September of last year, on September the 8th, there was a NASA moon bulletin in which it was stated that any future landings of astronauts on the moon, uh, they might encounter a problem that had not been anticipated before. It had to do with radiation. The moon, having no atmosphere, is bombarded by cosmic rays, by solar flares, and that's a problem in itself. But now there's a concern that the moon itself may have radiation coming from below the surface that could endanger the lives of the astronauts. Interesting. Well, now, the reason why it becomes doubly interesting is because on March the 14th, 1967, 28 years, more than 28 years earlier, Velikovsky sent a memorandum to his friend Hess, who was in the geology department at Princeton University, in which, and now remember, this is only two years before the first lunar landing, and Velikovsky, being aware of the fact that they were trying to reach the moon within the next few years, Uh said that in his memo, which, by the way, has been uh, published, which is known, said that the astronauts should... I don't know if he called them astronauts, but I guess he did. Yeah, they were called astronauts. And he said they they should be aware, NASA should be aware of the fact that aside from cosmic rays, he used the word, the phrase, cosmic rays, Uh and uh, instead of solar flares, he said solar plasma, that there would also be radiation as a result of the interplanetary bolts, the exchange of interplanetary electrical forces uh, that, he surmised occurred from the scenario of worlds in collision. Mm -hmm. And that given the half-life of radium, which is 1,580 years, they could still be exposed to that kind of radiation as well as radiation from other elements. And here is a man proposing this (laughs) 28 years before NASA actually comes out with the same thing. And the moon was thought of as just a dead rock. There's no no credit. Also... Uh, Velikovsky predicted that they would find water, and now they found that if they 
At first they didn't, but if they go deeper below the surface now, they think they might be able to find water, the presence of water on the moon. You know, Professor Greenberg, there was just an article that came out last week that had to do with, maybe two weeks ago, whatever, sometime in the last couple of weeks, that had to do with recent volcanic activity on the moon. That I'm not aware of, but it's possible. I mean, there are new things that are happening all the time, new discoveries. Uh, shifting to Mars, Velikovsky had talked about the scars of Mars, mm. and the cratering on Mars, which has now been found to be the case. He made a prediction that argon would be a major component of the Martian atmosphere. Now, what's interesting is that when the first Russian probes reached there, they found high percentage of argon, which was reported. When the American probes got there, the argon suddenly was gone, and now they were, uh, it never was there, and the Russians were wrong, and they found something, and what I could never get over is the fact that the Russians never disputed the American claim as to what their probes found in the atmosphere. So I don't know what's going on there. I do not totally trust the reporting of NASA. I have good reason to I mean, feel that way from you. my experience of the last 30-odd uh, years. And uh, certainly the evidence of the Martian surface indicates that it was subjected to some sort of uh, cosmic battering. Of course, the question is when. Uh, one of the articles in Velikovsky and Establishment Science written by a sociologist, Professor Sidney Wilhelm, had to do with what he called the temporocentric challenge. And huh. by that, he was referring to the fact that what Velikovsky proposed, he proposed occurring in historical times, and that is something that is not acceptable to the psyche of these individuals who feel that you're, you're shaking the foundations of stability for everything. Once you shake the foundations of stability for our entire solar system, what does that do to one's mental state? Right now, our entire globe is under the cloud of terrorism, war. The whole thing is crumbling left and right, mm. brought about by those who have no historical or geographical knowledge. Mm -hmm. And On all been, sides. Excuse me? On all sides. I On all sides. And when you consider what is going on in the world today and how you have a destabilizing effect, and what, what that does to our physical well-being and our psyches. Imagine if you were to discover that the entire system that you're in is unstable and something worse could be visited upon us. And this is something, psychologically speaking, that the, the scientific community cannot accept. Of course, those people involved in the controversy consider it to be a cop-out, that, oh, you can explain all this through uh, psychological uh, or, or explain it away through psychological means. But when I do discuss Velikovsky from a psychological standpoint, he's not explaining something away. He's adding a warning here from all of this, and, and I will, mm. will clarify that momentarily. It was found that the sky of Mars, what would be seen from there, the, there's, there's not that much in the way of atmosphere, but the view of the sky was not what Velikovsky had predicted. So, of course, if you hit a home run, that's fine, or, or, or it may not be acknowledged as much, but if you strike out, wow. Right, right. So if you strike out Babe Ruth, I guess that's more of an accomplishment than him hitting a home run, which is expected. As far as Saturn and Jupiter, the big one about Jupiter was that he claimed that 
Jupiter gave off, expected Jupiter would be found to give off radio noises. Which was preposterous at the time. Yeah, right? and he proposes a forum address in 1953 that was published as a supplement to Earth and Upheaval, which came out in 1955. And it was shortly afterwards that radio signals were found emanating from Jupiter, and it was this that really moved Einstein to try to get behind Velikovsky to get certain experiments done. Unfortunately, Einstein died within a few days of this, with Worlds in Collision supposedly open on his desk. Amazing. And a physicist, James Warwick, who came to a symposium in Hamilton, Ontario, in 1974, in the summer of 74, when I attended the symposium, there was another Velikovsky symposium, he talked about Velikovsky and his advanced claim about these radio signals, and he stood there, immobilized on this stage, saying, I want to give him credit, but... And he would not, would not spit it out and say, I'm giving him credit. <laughs> and he said, well, he didn't say whether they're the result of thermal activity or some other kind of activity. He wasn't that specific. It came back again to this earlier article, uh, this earlier, earlier criticism, how hot is hot? Right. When people weren't even thinking in those terms mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. uh, there were... Venus was thought at one time to be more swampy, perhaps. Uh, maybe it would have high humidity. Right, before the probes, they didn't think it was going to be hot Nothing at all. Nothing like that. No, there were no ideas like no, that. No, not 900 degrees. Right, right. And um, it turns out that even a body such as Jupiter, thought to be an icy uh, globe, has uh, an internal temperature that was once measured as being higher than the photosphere of the sun. Yeah, and there, there are people that talk about Jupiter being close to being a star. Yes, yeah, so they, they consider Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune as possibly being failed stars, hmm. where they did not reach stellar magnitude, but you could look at it from another standpoint that perhaps they once were stellar objects that are past. Or maybe they will be. Excuse me? Or maybe they will be. No, no, at this point, no? that it's doubtful if they, if they were any, if they were anything, they might have been uh, semi-stars at one point that have now dissipated in time. Now, as far as Saturn is concerned, Velikovsky, again, through the, the documentation that he was dealing with, proposed that Saturn was responsible for what he called the universal flood, which is indicated in the flood of Noah, of Noah as a kind of reflexive uh, folklore, fairy tale, if you want to call it that, but it re it's reflective of a true universal flood. Oh, yeah, that's reported all over the world. Yeah, and that um, Saturn went nova. Now, nova is not the same as a supernova. Supernova, the whole body is, is destroyed, but going nova, whatever is uh, there as a uh, as initial globe, so you could still have a, a a globe, a, a, a body. body. Over. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, in going Nova, Velikovsky said that Saturn dispersed this water into the inner solar system. It also may have been closer to the Earth. In fact, Velikovsky suggested, and here's a theory that will knock people's socks off, that the Earth might have once revolved around Saturn <laughs> and, was, and that it was a separate system that was captured by our sun. Mm, amazing. And that the 
today we now revolve around the sun, and once we may have revolved around Saturn. Remarkable. A man named David Talbot wrote a book published in 1981, I believe, titled The Saturn Myth, which people might find again today uh, somewhere, Amazon.com or other places, where he and um, a close friend of mine and colleague, Eduardo Cardona, who lives in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, another man, Ev Cochran, you know what? Hey, look, uh, Professor Greenwood, yep. let's take a break right here okay. right at the top of the hour. Now, I'll let you, um, I, just let me do my ID here, and then you can decide if you want to actually take a, a break or not. But, uh, no, I'm doing fine. So okay, all right, well, we'll fine. keep going. You're listening to KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. This is Mike Hagan. The program is called Radio Orbit. It's just 1 a.m. now, Midwestern time at least, 2 a.m. Uh, out in Florida, where my guest is talking to us uh, from. His name is Professor Louis Greenberg, and we're discussing his work and the work of Emmanuel Velikovsky. On the web, you can find this at www.mikehagan.com, and you can link over to Kronos Press if you're interested in some of the material that's been published. It's still available from Professor Greenberg and the people over at Kronos. And you can also uh, check out this program in the archives in about 24 hours. I'll get I'll get it down from the server here at the station and up on the website so people who miss the program or want to share it with others uh, can do that sometime tomorrow, okay? All right, right back now to Professor Lewis Greenberg. Thanks so much, by the way, for sticking around. I know it's oh, getting late. My, so. my, my pleasure. I've gotten a third wind. No problem. All right, great. Anyway, so, uh, we're on, on with, uh, with Saturn, Saturn, I guess. Yes. Yeah, the, and Velikovsky made uh, certain uh, predictions. And uh, by the way, I mentioned this colleague of mine, Eduardo Cardona. He recently came out with a book titled God Star, Whoa. which is a huge book in paperback. That um, it's, a, it's an oversized book, very thick, that details the significance of Saturn as a planetary deity in the various pantheons. And also there's a colleague of his, Ev Cochran, who has written articles in this area, The Importance of uh, Saturn, Although Cochrane has published two books, one titled Martian Metamorphoses and another The Many Faces of Venus. He's been especially dealing with Mars and Venus. But uh, this idea of the Earth revolving around another celestial body, I first heard it uh, on the eve of the Portland Symposium in 1972. Someone from Velikovsky's in a circle at the time mentioned it while we were sitting around in a lounge the night before the beginning of the symposium. When I heard that, I cannot tell you the reaction I had. I didn't find it to be fanciful. I just thought, oh my gosh, what an idea. Just the idea of it in any event. And some of the advanced claims that Velikovsky made would be that Saturn gives off cosmic rays, X-rays, and he believed that chlorine would be found in the atmosphere of Saturn because, among other things, he thought that one of the reasons why the sea is salt, so salty, a problem as to what is the source of so much salt in the sea and the oceans, uh -huh. is that the waters that fell from above contained um, a large amount of chlorine. Now, I'm not sure of the chemistry here, but the idea was that the chlorine would then uh, unite with the sodium and, of course, produce table salt, ordinary uh -huh. salt, NaCl, or it could unite with potassium and give you potassium chloride. Right. Uh, chlorine is uh, very, very reactive. That's 
of the most reactive of the elements. And unfortunately, chlorine has not been discovered to my knowledge. If it has, no one has indicated it. But the rings of Saturn are known to be primarily ice. And recently, within the past year, I believe, X-rays have been found to be coming out of being emitted by Saturn. So uh, also a colleague of mine informs me that Saturn also gives off radio noise, but I guess not the same level as Jupiter. But hmm. here you have these new discoveries. Velikovsky is never mentioned. No one ever says, oh, gee, this individual once uh, came up with the idea that this is the situation. This would be the situation. No credit is given. And there is so much. I, I, I'm on, I've only touched the tip of the iceberg in all of this. I know. It's amazing. And um, the reason why I don't even want to spend more time on on this is because I did want to get to the psychological work and also his historical work because he published more on the historical work than anything else. You know, we have to talk about one more thing with regard to the catastrophic physical events in it. And, you know, many of his ideas now have been sort of accepted as self-evident, but but a lot of them are sort of more, for example, this idea of time that we really, uh, we, we haven't covered a whole lot yet, but the idea of dating and this sort of thing, because some people will say, well, yeah, catastrophism is certainly a real phenomenon, but it just happens on these huge long time scales and nothing we have to worry about, right? That's, that's that's certainly one case. I'll give you another example. They might agree about the fact that a catastrophe occurred at a certain time, but a different agent is given the credit. For example, Velikovsky linked the exodus and the plagues of Egypt with the planet Venus in, uh, as a, uh, in cometary form as a protoplanet coming near to the Earth in two passes around 1500 B.C. Uh, let's say more about 1450 and then 50, 52 years later at the time of Joshua with the, with the sun standing still, the long day of Joshua. Uh, that, that, by the way, has led to a great deal of criticism and laughter because, um, for example, uh, Isaac Asimov, uh, another critic, who should have stuck with his science fiction writing. <laughs> Isaac Asimov was not a scholar, and I emphasize that repeatedly. He was not a scholar. I don't think he ever found a footnote he liked because his work is not referenced. If he ever used a reference, uh, it's very, very, very rare. I can't put enough varies in front of there. He was a popularizer who wrote about everything and I think was more interested in how many books he could write and then celebrate every centenary, 100th, 200th, 300th, 400th, but a major critic of Velikovsky, and he was always wrong. Huh. In any event, he said that Velikovsky's scenario reminded him of an H.G. Wells story which was made into a movie, The Man Who Could Work Miracles, where in order to get more time to do something, he ordered that the Earth stop rotating. And of course, because of inertia, everybody started and everything started flying off. He had made himself invulnerable, so he was able to restore everything back to the way it was. Now, in Velikovsky's scenario, the Earth did not suddenly stop. You, have, you could have a gradual slowing that would elongate the day, but not necessarily just stop it, mm -hmm. per se. That's, that's number one. Uh, Th that were, might not even be noticeable, perhaps. Well, people were, it's not obvious. You know, people were, were saying, oh, everybody would fly off the Earth at 900 miles an hour. 
Right. That's the speed that you would have around the equator. But no, you have a slowing down. That's number one. Number two, you might have had a tilting of the Earth's axis, which would give the appearance of a long day, not necessarily even just a um, slowing down. So that's one thing. The excuse me. In the Bible, it talks about Barad falling just before the long day. One of the definitions of the term would be stones, which would be meteorites. So something physical was falling from the sky. Uh, some uh, scholars have translated the word as hail, but also it, it could be stone. Stone. So the idea that something physical such as that happened just before this long day of Joshua could indicate the approach of a celestial body mm. that was having an effect. Now, the reason I brought this up is that right up to the present time, there are articles, books coming out dealing with the plagues of Egypt. And, and I can't get over how many people keep recycling the same idea and not giving credit to predecessors. Velikovsky isn't the only one who is neglected. And one of the theories, the theory that is put forward, is that the gigantic volcanic eruption of the island of Fira, Santorini today, in the Mediterranean, which is near Crete, was responsible for the the plagues, that uh, the waters that uh, came to the east, first you'd have a withdrawal of waters that would fill up this great depression, this caldera from the volcano, and then the waters would come back, ergo you have the waters parting for the Hebrews, and then they come back and drown the host of Pharaoh, the uh, various plagues that you have in sequence follow some sort of a natural order in Egypt depending upon the circumstances. Now, this theory was put forward, I think, as early as around 1950, in the 50s. It certainly was brought up in the 60s by a man named Kalinopoulos, by a man named Luce, by a man named Maver. No, they're not mentioned. And then you have instead others bringing up the theory as recently as the 80s and the present, as if they didn't even have predecessors in this. What's interesting is that the chronology for the island of Thera, and this is where radiocarbon comes in, is in flux. The dating for the eruption was originally based upon collations with the Egyptian chronology. In other words, artifacts that were found in the vicinity of Thera. Okay would be linked to the chronology of Egypt. So they got a date of 1500 B.C. Now, through new radiocarbon dating, there's been a big battle going on since 1988 over the fact that maybe this should be dated to the 17th century B.C., oh. at least under 50 years earlier. But if you do that, something's wrong with the Egyptian chronology, which creates a problem. And, of course, that certainly divorces it from any exodus. No exodus has, no date for the exodus has ever been put back that far. Well... Will you talk a little bit about radiocarbon yeah, dating I, and all this? Yeah, I will get to that. In right. fact, if you want me to insert some of that now before I get to the psychological... Sure, let's, let, let's do that now. The thing about radiocarbon dating is that there are so many variables. It was uh, discovered by Willard Libby around um, 1952. And the thing about radiocarbon dating is that, first of all, it has to do with organic material. I always have to get a laugh out of these movies and TV shows where they want to radiocarbon uh, something, uh, carbon date something that is non-organic. You can't do that. You can't radiocarbon date a pot, for example. There are other methods of dating this, but um, radiocarbon dating has to do with the fact that living organisms absorb the amounts of radiocarbon, 
and then when they die, that's it. They don't absorb any more, theoretically, and then they give off the, 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 the radiocarbon is, diminishes in whatever absorbed it over a certain period of time. You have a half-life, and then you measure this, and from the amount that's left... But, you, but, but how do you know how much began with? How, how do you know how much they started with? Well, it, 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 it has to do with... Um, it's not so much what they start with, how, how much is left. Mm. Uh, that, that is, that's what's measured in the process. Yeah, but if you, if, if you don't know what you started with, how do, how do you know... Um, I can't answer that question. I'm not sure exactly. It's so strange. Uh, I've, uh, anyway. Beginning of the process, but here are here here are the problems. First of all, there are disagreements over what constitutes the half life for the radiocarbon dating, where you can get a uh, differential between the different uh, theories by maybe one or two centuries. Right there. Secondly, you have a plus or a minus factor of maybe a couple of centuries. Now, when you're dealing with astronomical or geological events, a couple of hundred years one way or another may not be significant at all, insignificant. But when you're dealing with historical facts and you're dealing with a difference of plus or minus 200 and then variables from the uh, half-life of the radiocarbon, not to mention the fact that you also have the problem of contamination. If you have volcanic eruption, you're getting dead carbon, which might give you a an inaccurate reading. Something might appear to be too old, for example. And to show you the problems with radiocarbon dating, I know this for a fact that one item, one object, was that was found, a piece of wood, was broken in half. Half was given to the British Museum and half given to the Museum of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And differing results came out from the test, the huh. same piece of wood. Hmm. So the question is, which one is the correct one? Unfortunately, too often you have radiocarbon dates being applied to objects that are supposedly of a known date. So if you get a radiocarbon date that does not agree with the known date, it's tossed out as an anomaly. Interestingly enough... Yeah, that's cost- the way science is. They sort of throw out the interesting ones. Yeah, well, yeah, they, they, they throw it and, 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 the, and they keep the ones that agree with right. what they knew to be, supposedly knew beforehand. Right, right. What's interesting is that in Velikovsky's first historical book, Ages and Chaos, which came out in 1952, wherein he proposed that the Egyptian chronology, or intimated, and said that he would show for sure what this was in forthcoming in a forthcoming sequel, which unfortunately he delayed until 1977, Peoples of the Sea, and I know why the delay, which I can expand upon momentarily, uh, that there's a 500-year discrepancy. The Egyptian chronology needs to be uh, downdated by between 500 and as much as perhaps even 800 years. And he explains uh, in his various books why this came about. There might be time yet time where I can give some of the reasons, but... He came up with a date for the time of Tutankhamun, who was placed around 1325 B.C. He came up with a date of about 825 B.C. in his own work. Later on, a couple of objects from the tomb were carbon dated and came out with a date very close to that, but they were considered to be anomalies. Also, suppose you cut down a tree. From that point on, the tree no longer absorbs uh, carbon. 
mm. uh, radioactive carbon, and now now it's supposed to give it off. You can, you can start, right, right, right. You begin right. to have the deterioration of that uh, carbon. But now suppose the lumber is stored in a lumber yard for, let's say, 50 or 100 years, not to mention the other problems I mentioned. Or suppose it's used in a building, and then a later pharaoh decides to purloin it and reuse it. Now what happens? You see the problems that begin to evolve with the dating. You may not know that that was reused, but it could have been. How long did it... What are the variables in carbon dating to begin with? How long did the wood sit around before it was used? Then was the wood reused, and what about contamination? If you have cosmic catastrophes, you're going to have contamination, which is going to throw off your carbon dates in any event. And when you consider the leeway for plus or minus factors on carbon dating, you have problems right there. Plus or minus 100, 200 years is not good enough. A plus or minus factor of 200 years could be throw you off by 400 years, Mm. because it could be 200 years on either side of a certain date. And uh, it's... You cannot imagine how dates have changed and the reasons why certain objects were dated the way they were in the first place, but then while certain items were changed, other items which depended upon that first dating are not changed. One key item is the date for the famous lawgiver Hammurabi, whose dates have moved all the way from something like the 21st century B.C. or the 22nd century B.C., in some estimates all the way down to the 15th century B.C. Currently, he's placed in the 17th century B.C., but those things that were associated with him earlier, what happened to them Hmm. as far as uh, moving them down or or changing the correlation? So you've got to move the whole deal. Yeah, you've got a lot of problems that, that way. And the other thing, too, is that the writing of of history is really written by the the survivors. History is written by the victors, uh, as one expression goes. You cannot imagine how many intellectual movements and ideas have been affected just by war. And I'm not just talking about the loss of life, which is bad enough, but entire schools of creative activity and creative thought have been wiped out. For example, the futurist movement in art was practically wiped out completely as a result of World War One. And a good case in point has to do with the chronology of ancient Egypt. There's a period in ancient Egypt, the second intermediate period, it's supposedly a break period, a hiatus period, uh, for whatever reason it's thought to be the result of what they call the Hyksos invasion, which terminated the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. Then you have Hyksos rule, and then the beginning of the the New Kingdom. Well, what's interesting, and I have it right in front of me, currently there is a period of time allotted between the two kingdoms, the Middle and the New Kingdom, of somewhere around 200, uh, I'm sorry, about 170 years uh, between 1720 and, let's say, 1550 B.C. Okay. Now, what is, and this is, you'll find this in all the books. You go into the books on Egyptian art, Egyptian history, Egyptology Day, and this is what you will see. You might find 1720, 1580. They keep, they keep 
moving that 1,500-something date around. But what is not, not what is not realized is that both the absolute date for the beginning of the 18th dynasty, which begins the New Kingdom, the current date of about 1557 or so, and the interval period between the end of the Middle Kingdom and the 18th dynasty, what is the 12th and the 18th, was not agreed upon by the various scholars. For example, starting in 1839 and moving all the way up to 1904, you have no two scholars <coughs> excuse me, agreeing with dates varying, a duration of time varying from 1,595 years. Well, actually, two of them do agree on that date, on that duration. And it goes all the way down to 210 years in 1904, starting in 1839, and you have dates of 1,595, 1,589, 10,09, 6,76, 8,93, 13,59, 6,98, 6,95, 5,33, 6,00, 15,00, 13,06, 12,99, 2,10, and 16,00, I'm sorry, 6,18. Now, does that sound like a consensus? Does that sound like an agreement? No, they can't agree on anything. What happened is that people die, and whoever survives to the survivor... Uh, goes the goes the paradigm. chronology uh, goes the paradigm right, <laughs> yeah. and the survivor's disciples. Another thing is, if you look at some of the original publications, the field reports, the journals, you have authors who will say um, possibly such and such, as far as let's say a date, and then in time it becomes probably such and such, right. and then in time that's dropped. Now the sheer repetition of the once tentative possible date is now codified as an absolute date. And that's a real problem. Right. And Egyptian chronology has served as the mighty tree that supports the chronologies of the entire ancient world, especially the ancient eastern Mediterranean, down to oh, I would say the 8th, 7th centuries when the internal chronologies of the other countries begin to take over. In fact, right. the effect could be uh, even seen in the chronology of ancient India. And you cannot imagine the problems from all this. You have dark ages that appear inexplicably, mm -hmm. and this is the result of the fact that chronologies are ripped apart by being associated with the chronology of Egypt. What did Velikovsky say about the Dark Ages in 5680? That there is no Dark Age. This is the Dark Age of Greece where he shows that there is no Dark Age, that the chronology needs to come down. There is no 500-year or 400-year separation. Mm. And he has supported this with um, a tremendous amount of evidence. And I have done research on my own, and I'm in agreement. The Dark Age is not known to the Greeks themselves. And... What happened was, in the late 19th and the early 20th century, the classicists bowed to the Egyptologists. The internal evidence that they came upon dictated one chronology. Uh, let's say pottery finds from different styles were interspersed, mm -hmm. and yet following the Egyptian chronology now had to be separated by a large, large gulf in time. The Egyptologists have relied upon a certain stellar chronology called Sothic dating, which has been impugned again and again, 
even by traditional scholars, a man named Ronald Long, writing in Orientalia, 1974, proposed, uh, indicated various problems in his reexamination of Sophic dating. In a supplement to his book, Peoples of the Sea, which was published in 1977, now out of print, Velikovsky uh, wrote a long supplement, which he had actually written more than 25 years before that should have come out right after the first volume in the Ages and Chaos series. This was titled Astronomy and Chronology, in which he showed the problems of dealing with astronomical underpinnings for the chronology of ancient Egypt, especially reliance upon supposedly the star Sirius. Hmm. Then you have the king lists under the um, writings of a priest named Manetho, writing under the second Ptolemy, when the Greeks were ruling in Egypt, of whom Cleopatra was the last. And you have a problem with trying to collate some of the names that he had with the interpretation or the translation of names that Egyptologists came upon and the length of their reigns. What's interesting is now there are more sophisticated uh, means of examining mummies, the mummies of different pharaohs, and they're finding much to their chagrin that the mummies are much younger than what they thought, and being much younger could not possibly have reigned as long. Mm. So there's a problem with the right. chronology right there. Right, right, Even right. the great Ramses II, there's a question over the mummy that they have and the dating, the age of that mummy, as opposed to uh, what they thought was his age at the time of his, de his death and how long he reigned. And so it goes. Then you have reference to an era of Menophries, and they're not sure whether it refers to an individual or perhaps the city of Memphis. And is the great year, the Sophic year, 1,460 years, or is it a Venus year of 1,460 days? <laughs> and why would a society perpetuate an error that would result in something not being rectified until the passage of 1,460 years? If the society is so sophisticated that it could build pyramids with such exactitude, why would they perpetuate that kind of a chronological error and not make adjustments for it? And 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 so on, and so it goes. I, I don't want to waste time. It's not a question of waste time. I don't want to spend any more time on that because there's still so much to cover. Okay. Well, um... Do we want to take a break? Then we'll go to the psychology. Yeah. Let's take let's take a short break, and then we'll and and then we'll come back and we'll talk about psychology, and then. Uh, we can talk as long as you like after that. We probably have to cut it at about five till. Okay, you'll uh, let me know. I'll let you know, okay? But uh, as long as you're still willing, I'm just uh, perfectly happy okay. and enjoying myself. It's wonderful. And no, it's fine with me. All right, wonderful. So we'll be back in just a minute, okay? Yeah. All right, everybody. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. we got uh, Professor Lewis Greenberg on the line with us from his home in Florida. Amazing first-hand historical information about Emmanuel Velikovsky, the amazing Dr. Emmanuel Velikovsky, one of my heroes, and I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak with Professor Greenberg tonight. So we'll get right back to him in just a minute here. Uh, in the meantime, one more piece of music from Sherelle C. Limes and the Lemons. This one is called, let's see, uh, how about The Best Lullaby? No, I think I'll save that for last. We're going to listen to Your Messenger. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Back in a minute with Professor Greenberg. For forgiveness 
Shannon Diaz. That's called Your Messenger. All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's about 1.32 now in the AM on the 28th. Yeah, the 28th of November. Can you believe it? Anyway, we've got uh, Professor Lewis Greenberg on the line with us here from Florida. He's been with us for two and a half hours. So, first of all, big kudos and thanks uh, for sticking around. It's amazing information, and I know my listeners are very uh, happy to be able to listen to you for this amount of time. My pleasure. Uh, before we proceed, what I wanted to do is just give a listing of Velikovsky's works in chronological order and then give just a little information regarding the delay in some of the later uh, work and why. Okay. In 1950, he published Worlds in Collision. In 1952, he published Ages in Chaos. In 1955, he published Earth in Upheaval, which was meant to be the geological underpinning for the thesis of Worlds in Collision. It also had a supplement which supported what he said in Worlds in in Collision and also supported some of what he said in Ages in Chaos. In 1960, he finally published Oedipus and Akhenaten. The basic thesis is that the story of Oedipus is the mythical reflex of the historical Akhenaten and the events that unfolded in the royal house of the pharaoh Akhenaten, the husband of Nefertiti. So Akhenaten would have been the pharaoh who was in power when all the when the rain came down, so to speak. No, no. Um, he um, he does not place Akhenaten as the pharaoh of the Exodus or anything like that. No, he uh, he would have Akhenaten as the historical counterpart of Exodus. Uh, Exodus of the historical counterpart of Oedipus. Oh, okay. And um, Nefertiti would be, uh, well, actually not Nefertiti, but Queen Tai, the mother of Akhenaten, would be the counterpart of uh, Jocasta, who was the mother-wife of Oedipus. And uh, Tutankhamun and Semenkara, actually Semenkara is a slightly older brother, maybe, the question over the age of the two now would be the counterpart of the Greek Ateocles and Polynices. Polynices being the counterpart of Semenkara, Ateocles being the counterpart of Tutankhamun. Creon would be the counterpart of of I, who was the uncle and successor of Tutankhamun. And I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> then in uh, ninth, then there's a long hiatus. It wasn't until 1977 that Velikovsky came out with Peoples of the Sea, the original title for what would have been the second volume of Ages in Chaos. Because of the response of the academic and scientific community, and the, and the whatever you want to call a community at large, to Worlds in Collision and, and Ages in Chaos, and under the advice of Professor Claude Schaefer, a French archaeologist, and Dr. Eva Danilius, an Israeli archaeologist, she was also a lawyer, they had advised him to expand the second volume in order to make his thesis more uh, supportive. So he basically pulled the book from page proof. I mean, page proof is even more than just galley proof. It's ready to go to press. And he, he tore it apart and expanded all the sections so that from one volume, he was going to produce four volumes. Peoples of the Sea, which would be the last in the series, and Ramses II in his time, which he really wanted to title Ramses II and Nebuchadnezzar, making them contemporaries, which they are not, according to traditional thinking. Uh, Ramses II in his time came out in 1978, 
and then he would have had the Dark Age of Greece and the Assyrian Conquest. The Assyrian Conquest was the original Assyrian Conquest that appeared in the original Peoples of the Sea was published in Kronos Volume 3.3, which is unfortunately no longer in print. But he expanded that, and the Dark Age of Greece remains unpublished. Then in 1982, posthumously, Mankind and Amnesia, and then in 1983, posthumously, Stargazers and Gravediggers, Memoirs mm. to uh, Worlds in Collision. Right, that we talked about a little yeah, bit earlier. So, so Mankind and Amnesia. Is the, that, is the, the, that was to be the magnum opus. I just wanted to say to entice your listeners that uh, two of the theses, the, the conclusions that came out of Ages and Chaos, was that the female pharaoh Hatshepsut, was also one and the same as the so-called Queen of Sheba. And Tutmosis III, who succeeded her, is the Shishak of the Bible who despoiled and robbed the Temple of Solomon. So if this gets anybody's ears perked up, they can try to get a copy of that book and read what Velikovsky had to say about that. It, it's not a thesis that is accepted by conventional and it's not accepted by all those in Velikovsky's camp, but the debate goes on. There are those who support it, those who do not, but it's very interesting to, to read the pro and con arguments. You know, Lewis, I, as you've been mentioning some of these books, you know, I own a, I own a few of them, uh, but I've been going on the web and I've been punching them into like Amazon and Abe Books, as you've been me- and very few of them are available. A couple of them, the Gravedigger, Stargazers and Gravediggers, I found, but the cheapest one I can find is about 40 bucks. That's not too bad. It's a paperback. Oh, in paperback? Yeah, it's a paperback, and then and then there's and then there's one there's one paperback and then one hard hardcover uh, of of that book, Stargazers and Gravediggers, that I found. The original price I think was twenty five dollars for Stargazers and Gravediggers, and that was the highest uh, price for them, and that was back in nineteen eighty three. Huh. So again, if you can. It's out of print, so you know, to be able to get it at all is yeah, really something. Yeah, 1984. This a paperback from 1984 for 36 dollars, and that's from a little used bookstore. And then, and then, then the hardcover from April of 1993 I found for 99 dollars and 98 cents. That's the only two out there. My gosh! Wow. <laughs> Any, anyway, just to let people know, and, and like Mankind and Amnesia, that's a difficult one to find. Peoples of the Sea is difficult to find. You can usually find. Worlds in Collision and Ages, Ages in Chaos. At least I've I've been able to find those. But uh, anyway, it's remarkable how how little how difficult it is to find you know these books. Well, the, the problem is that Velikovsky literally lost an entire generation in the delay. He he wanted his books to be as perfect as possible and to be as up to date as possible before he came out with them. So. In order to bring them up to date, he was always sliding behind. Instead of publishing a book and then coming out with a revised edition, he'd be revising it before he ever published it. Because I watched this process from 1973 until 1978 with Ramses II in his time. It's sort of the way he wrote letters, like you mentioned. I, I read the galleys to Ramses II in his time back in 1973, and the final version did not come out till 1978. Huh, amazing. So uh, that's... And Peoples of the Sea was in galley... For men also, which I did not get a chance to see, that didn't come out until 1977. So uh, what can I say? Right. Now, the, our time is fleeting, so let me go on. Yeah, we got about 15 minutes. So, right. Right. Now, Pelikovsky's great concern had to do with the subject of war and mankind's self-destructiveness. 
it was his thinking from his psychoanalytical background that the human race had been subjected to a collective trauma as a result of these cataclysms that occurred in historical times, these cosmic catastrophes, and it also suffered from a collective amnesia. That does not mean to say that the events themselves were absolutely, totally forgotten and unrecorded. They were, but recorded in mythic terms, in, for lack of a better word, metaphorical terms, that the myths of the world, for example, and the religions of the world contained the elements of these catastrophes, mm-hmm. and that the human race, just as an, indiv- like, as an individual, would suffer a trauma. So did the human race as a result of this. Now, where does war enter the picture? There are two factors here. One is called repetition compulsion, and the other would be a form of um, imitation or what one might call the spurious gods. When you study the world's myths and religions, one of the things that you see constantly involved, no matter where you go, is what Velikovsky termed theomachy. It's not an invented word, but theomachy means battle of the gods. Uh The gods are always battling. If humankind has in its pantheons around the world divine battles, divine warfare, in conducting war, you are imitating the activity and the deeds of the gods, gods. especially if you have rulers who themselves are considered to be living gods, Mm. divine in this life and or divine in the other. So you have that aspect to it. Also, repetition compulsion in that by doing something, you continue to do it again and again. You cannot help yourself. The idea is to try to recognize this and break that cycle. And one of the things that Velikovsky tried to indicate to mankind in amnesia was how this repetition, compulsion, displayed itself in the religions of mankind, in, in, in behavioral patterns, in the general history of mankind. Unfortunately, the book did not contain nearly as much as he had intended. The man was working on so many uh, books simultaneously. For example, he had a book that I recommended publication as far back as 1980, his dealings just with Einstein. It was titled Before the Day Breaks. Yes, that's on that V archive as oh, well. It's on that? Okay, that's, that's one. I mentioned yeah, the orbit wonderful. before. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, there's the Assyrian Conquest, the Dark Age of Greece, which is unpublished. And uh, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, Saturn of the Flood and Jupiter of the Thunderbolt hmm. remain unpublished. He also had a, an autobiography that he had intended to come out with. And uh, many, many individual articles that could have been put together as a compendium. He wanted to uh, write an additional rebuttal to his critics, uh, that went under various titles, sometimes The Sins of the Sons, another time it was titled Conscience and Science, but I think Sins of the Sons would have been the final title, but again, that all of this remains unpublished. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting, uh, getting back to Mankind and Amnesia, as a psychoanalyst, he said he couldn't put the entire human race on a couch, but 
he was trying to make people aware as to why this uh, behavior, this phenomenon was going on. And uh, there are many books on the subject of war. So it's, it, this is not an outlandish theory. There are more and more books that come out on, on war today. And I'm not talking about historical survey of wars and battles. I'm talking about uh, why war. This is a question posed by Freud that he was unable to answer. Why war? Uh, humankind is not the are not we're not the only creatures that war, but we're certainly in a minority among all the various species. And also, the way we destroy each other, the sheer quantity of it. And I have to use the word quality, but I don't mean to imply that it's any quality to war. Right, but, but but the horrors of war, along with the sheer quantity, just look at what's going on in Iraq today, right. the constant bloodletting, where our own government refuses to use the word civil war, but today they used it finally. And now, now it's officially a civil war in some circles, but the government doesn't want to use that term because it has other political ramifications. But look at how many books deal with our own civil war. We keep reliving it again and again. I don't know of any other nation that has elevated its civil war to what we have done, where we have movies, we have TV, and we have books, endless books coming out about the civil war, where we wallow in our own civil war history. And to me, I just don't quite get it, mm. I, I must say. Uh, you don't have anything like that on the Spanish civil war. Uh, there are other civil wars that have occurred throughout the world. You don't have this same kind of constant outpouring. I think that one of the reasons, if I might venture my own hypothesis here, is that unless somebody else has come up with it, I don't know about it, is that our civil war may have elements that remind one of the Trojan War, which has become such a major epic and such a major underpinning for so much of Western history. And the reason why I mention that is that both sides of the war have a certain noble element about it. There is no good and no evil. It's not good versus evil. So therefore, uh, it has been elevated to a different level. And this is why so much attention to it. Interesting. And uh, what Velikovsky tried to also indicate in his writings, and I wrote an article that um, actually was put down as co-author with my friend Warner Sizemore because um, he would help me with the research. Velikovsky's concern was that man, mankind in acquiring thermonuclear weaponry, now could certainly imitate the gods, the celestial thunderbolts of Zeus. Mm. Promethean fire was now ha in the hands of humankind right. in the form of thermonuclear Weaponry and now war could result in total extinction. This this was a concern of his to the very end, and it, it was a genuine concern. The, the man was n not just giving it lip service. And with what goes on in the world today, especially the saber rattling coming out of Iran and the idea of the end of days in Armageddon, you can see very clearly here in the early part of the 21st century the kind of thought process that is going on in, in certain circles. Hmm. And you could have a domino effect with one errant missile that would lead to total destruction, far worse than what anyone ever imagined. And there would be no survivors. I don't care how anybody can kid themselves about uh, surviving. Look what happens 
in the aftermath of a hurricane. Look at Katrina. Mm. Look at Wilma. I lived through Wilma. I know what uh, what goes on. Just the loss of electricity for a few days. Mm. Imagine what would happen with a global thermonuclear war. Uh, yeah, I mean, things break down much quicker than people would like to imagine, you know. In 1975, um, I expanded upon an earlier article that I wrote called uh, from oh from microcosm to macrocosm oh. the fearful symmetry of catastrophism and what I did was write oh. an article that paralleled the uh, the end of World War II and the beginning of the atomic age with cosmic catastrophes and uh, went on from there also a uh, a colleague wrote a short article titled Theo Maki in the Theater that was an analysis of the Godzilla movies and all those movies <laughs> as a uh, an aspect, a, a, a metaphor for the the bombing of, um, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that this was a Japanese reflex. I expanded upon that article. The man uh, died suddenly, and I took his um, his work and expanded upon it, and it was published in 1975, titled Theo Maki in the Theater. And what's interesting is that Hiroshima and Nagasaki are never mentioned, but Tokyo is always being blitzed. Huh. And you have a radioactive monster who keeps coming back again and again. Right, right. And the description that we find in the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki regarding the people and the destruction and the way people behaved and reacted seems to be echoed by... Uh, description of ancient catastrophe that may be more than just, let's say, social upheaval or um, localized catastrophe, but something that uh, is truly global, universal, if you will. So that, that, that's a key aspect. I, I would just like to say something else. I see our time is running out. Uh, Cronus, well, Cronus published a total of 44 issues in 13 years, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, we have published through the Osiris series, some recent books that you mentioned. My own was the first, came out in 1997, uh, Let There Be Darkness, The Reign of the Swastika. Actually, The Reign of the Swastika is how it is listed in books in print. Yeah, we, we haven't even had a chance to speak yeah. about your own work, so we're going to have to do that again. And the, the second one is Sun, Moon, and Sophis by Linny Rose, which is an analysis of the calendrics of ancient Egypt. And... Um, it's back to this timeline issue again. Yeah, and then the third, titled Predicting the Past, by unfortunately the late Roger Westcott. He passed away only within a few months of its publication. He huh. was an anthropologist and linguist, brilliant man, um, based at Drew University, um, first in his class, I believe, from Princeton University. And this is an anthropological, linguistic, and um, mythic analysis of, the, of past events. And, uh, but he called it predicting the past, and uh, those three are uh, still all available. I'm happy to say. Okay. And um, I see our time has almost concluded. Would you like to ask me? Uh, oh, very quickly, the other book which is available from the Chrono series, Velocosting Establishment Science, is a full-scale rebuttal to Sagan, Asimov, et al. I would just like to say one last word about Carl Sagan. Uh, he was among the most heinous of the critics. He was a late, late cri critic, the second generation, and it was his constant bombardment on Velikovsky 
well, Velikovsky was the last days that was the most upsetting. In fact, uh, I would say that Sagan was partly responsible for Velikovsky's demise in that he so demoralized the man with his criticism. And when it, Carl Sagan will go down, if he goes down at all, as being nothing but a popularizer, he was certainly not a notable theoretician. Uh, he made uh, many errors. He claimed things for himself that really he had no right to do. Uh, one of those was, I think, he was trying to claim the prediction of the temperature of Venus or, or how he could account for it, not so much a prediction, but how he could account for it, his runaway, runaway, runaway greenhouse theory, whatever. <laughs> but his attack was his attack was truly vicious. Mm. Asimov was a heavy critic, but uh, was more of a bumbler in that area. What's interesting is that many science fiction writers were among the most notable critics of Worlds in Collision. I think the reason for that was that if Velikovsky was wrong, if nothing else, he wrote a better science fiction work than any uh, any that they did. Mm. So uh, it's too bad. There was Elsbrog de Camp, who was skewered in Kronos under the heading Elsbrog de Camp Anatomy of his Aesthetic, where myself and Lynn Rose took care of him. Martin Gardner was another one who I mentioned before. And uh, you have... Uh, people like um, Patrick Moore from England. Uh, there was uh, a man named Donald Menzel along with Harlow Shapley and a woman named Penga Poshkin mm, yeah, who right, was right, uh, Harlow Shapley's cat's paw uh, <laughs> based in Harvard. Harvard was the big scientific critic because that was the bastion and Velikovsky was the the, out, the outsider, the interloper as right, it were. Right. So, and he was the one who crossed into the, into the disciplinary boundaries. That's a no-no. If you're a specialist in one area, you get a degree in one area, you're not allowed to cross into any other. Right, and that's did. such a huge problem, you know. So, and here was this polymath right. rubbing elbows with the likes of Einstein and Freud and others and disparaged and disparaged again, and yet he came with better credentials by far. In fact, he already had a well-established career in psychoanalysis and uh, came out, as I mentioned before, with excellent observations and discoveries long before he entered these other fields. Well, So uh, here's a case where hopefully, eventually, this man will be fully restored and been given his due. But unfortunately, these things take a while. Look how long it took for Galileo. Copernicus, yeah. Yeah, and so forth. Well, Donna Bruno. Uh, yeah, no kidding. There's, uh, uh, he's another. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very interested in alchemy on the side. But uh, at any rate, it is a, it's a remarkable story. And and uh, it was a remarkable man. Let me tell you something. When he called and you answered the phone, this is how he <laughs> said hello. He didn't say hello. He said Velikovsky. <laughs> and you almost came to attention at the phone. Right. That's how charismatic he was. Velikovsky. That was how he spoke an accent like that well you must feel you know blessed and privileged to have to have had the relationship that you had with him and I, and I commend you for continuing the work and for sharing it with uh, with other people for sharing it with us he was a true mentor I want to tell you and it, like he once said if I'm wrong then at least I was gloriously wrong <laughs> how about it how about it and he was always kind to his critics he wished them a long life you know why he wanted them to be around to see his triumph. <laughs> there you have it all right. Well, look, Professor Greenberg, I think we're going to have to call it at Yes, that. I know. And I thank you and your audience for your time and your indulgence and for the invitation. 
Uh, my pleasure. It's been a long time since I had a platform for my mentor. Well, we, uh, you've now got uh, one for the future, too. I'd love to have you back on the program here. There's so much more to talk about. Like well, the, um, we'll work out another time. Okay, we'll do it. Uh, in the meantime, go get yourself a little rest, all right? Yes, I have a long week coming up. All right, well, thank you one more time, everybody. Professor Lewis Greenberg, wonderful stuff. Thanks again. Thank you, Mike. All right, Good take night. care of yourself. Good night. Wow, okay, you guys, there you have it. Uh, a friend, associate, peer, editor of Emmanuel Velikovsky. Outrageous. Professor Lewis Greenberg, so lucky to have come across him in my travels there. So, all right, great stuff. I'll have this show up on the archives in... Um, in about 24 hours or so, maybe before that. But anyway, I will put on a piece of music here, and I'll come back. I'm not going to finish the show yet. Uh, they want me to shut the station down at 2 o'clock because nobody's coming in to do the shift from 2 until 5.30. So I'll just stick around, and I'll uh, talk about a couple things when I come back, all right? All right, in the meantime, let's play a song here from Sherelle C. Limes and the Lemons. How about this one? An Exercise in Strength. That's for both uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky and for Professor Lewis Greenberg, all right? Okay, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Back in just a minute.
All right, that's called an exercise in strength. Shannon Diaz on the web www.shannondiaz.com. And uh, I'm not sure what her MySpace address is, but you can probably get there from shannondiaz.com. Great local independent music from a talented young lady here in town. And we'll have uh, Shannon down here with me sometime uh, in the next month or two. Wanted to have her come down to the station tonight, actually, sometime, but we had uh, Professor Greenberg on right at the beginning of the program and ended up uh, going, obviously, right to the top of the hour here at 2 a.m. So, anyway, I should say KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's Mike Hagan doing a little extended bit here. I'll stay on the air for another few minutes here and tell you a little bit about what's coming up in the next week or two, three, four. Then I'm going to head on out of here, okay? Okay, uh, thanks to everybody who listened over the web or otherwise. I appreciate it. We're live every week here at KOPN and also on the web at www.cosmicwavesradio.com. Thanks to everybody there. Thanks to Larry, as always, the web wizard, doing great stuff on the web and sharing it with you guys. Thanks to everybody who's sending art, music, poetry. I love it and I appreciate it. We'll put it all up on the web and share it with anybody else who likes to look, okay? All that stuff on the web, like I say, www.mikehagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. You'll have access to everything that we're doing, okay? Take a look, see, send me a note, let me know if you like it. Uh, special announcements. Noah Earl. I ran into Noah Earl uh, tonight at Clover's getting some uh, supplements for my for my cold. Larry keeps telling me i got to buy these one particular vitamin, so I finally did. Anyway, I went to Clover's and bought them, and I ran into Noah, and we're going to do a program sometime, probably uh, after the first of the year. He's got a new album that's coming out in February, and uh, maybe in January we can get Noah to sneak down here to the station for a little while. He can play a few for us in the studio, and then I'll feature his music throughout the program uh, for the rest of the evening after we have him. So anyway, hopefully we can get that worked out. We talked a little bit about it. He's just an amazing and wonderfully talented young guy who's been uh, working real hard around here and lots of other places for quite some time, and is really paying off. Noah's great songwriter, great vocals, and a really, really great, talented guitarist. So anyway, Noah, I should say, duh, Noah, at the Cherry Street Artisan, Friday night, all right? I think 8 o'clock starts out. Same night, Lizzie West and Tony Corraldo, Lizzie and the White Buffalo, at Shea Cafe. I think that's probably at 8 o'clock, too, so you'll have to pick, or you'll go to do something else, all right? But anyway, great stuff in Columbia. Lots of wonderful music to choose from. And, you know, I was when I was talking to Earl, or, you know, okay, I've been on the air for three hours and five minutes. When I was speaking with Noah earlier, I asked if he had met Lizzie yet, and... He hadn't, and I think they would be an interesting combination, Lizzie West and Noah Earl. So I'd love to see them play together, actually. Anyway, both those two wonderfully talented people playing on Friday night. Noah at the Cherry Street Artisan, Lizzie at the Shea Cafe. All right? Okay, if you want to get a hold of me, email address, orbitradio at aol.com, on the web, www.mikehagan.com. Upcoming guests. Tonight we had Professor Lewis Greenberg. Thank you so much. Wonderful stuff. We'll have him again. He's got so much to share with us about Emmanuel Velikovsky and also his own work. This book that uh, Lewis wrote uh, about the history of the swastika is remarkable. Um, and so we'll share that with you at some time in the future. Uh, let's see. Next week, former Nebraska senator, uh, state senator John DeCamp, author of The Franklin Cover-Up and... Man, we've had a lot of courageous guys on the program over the last few weeks, and it's going to continue. This guy's outrageous, and he's doing stuff that is just just off the radar. 
So anyway, John DeCamp, former Nebraska State Senator, the author of the Franklin cover-up. Check it up. Uh, check it out if you're not familiar. You might also uh, look for an online video. It's probably on YouTube or Google or where lots of different places right now. It's called Conspiracy of Silence, and I'd advise that you brush up a little bit on the Franklin cover-up before you listen to John DeCamp. All right, no children allowed for this one. Uh, on the 11th of December, Jack Cole. Actually, children should be allowed to hear this stuff so they know what the hell is going on in their country. December 11th, Jack Cole. They should listen to this one, too. The executive director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. All right, on the 18th of December, Jay Widener returns. Can't wait to talk to Jay. He's wonderful and uh, a friend of the program. has a new book out. I think it's called Alchemy in Film or something to that effect. And we'll speak with him about movies and also about films. All right, what else? Uh, Jan Irvin, back on the program with his partner, uh, Andrew Rubiat, uh, Rubiat, and we'll talk about Christmas and some of the little-known history of that particular holiday. Let's see. New Year's, Rick Levine. You know, I mentioned that I was trying to get Rick to come back on the program for New Year's, and we'll talk about quantum astrology and maybe what's coming for us in the next year or so, and maybe we can look back at 2006 and see what he made of the whole thing and talk about some predictions and that sort of thing. We'll have a fun time with Rick Levine on New Year's Day night. That's the 1st of January. And I think on the 8th we'll have Stephen Buner, Stephen Herod Buner on January 8th. I'm actually going to speak with Stephen and record our interview this Sunday morning or this Saturday morning. I forget when. All right. Dale Pendell coming, Jim Beard coming, John Major Jenkins coming, Patrick Flanagan, lots of different stuff, all right? So stick around. Tune in. Come on back next week, and we'll have, uh, like I say, John DeCamp. Amazing stuff, all right? All right, thank you very much for listening. As always, it's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And we'll hear one more from my friend Shannon, and this one is called... What did I want to hear? Yeah, the best lullaby. Nice way to finish the program. Shannon Diaz, thanks for the music. On the web, one more time for Shannon at www.shannondiaz.com. And as I say, always at the end of the program, if you want to share this one or hear it sometime when you're not sleeping, you can get it on the web at www.mikehagan.com. Just go on over to the archives. You can download it listen to it whenever you like all right all right everybody it's been mike radio orbit kopn catch all you later the best lullaby shannon diaz
I'll 